Hey everybody, welcome back to Row Hunting Resources Podcast, and this is going to be the part two of the longer comprehensive discussion that Jay Scott of Jay Scott Outdoors and I had a couple weeks ago now regarding all things turkey. So like I mentioned in the first one, Jay went ahead and chunked his up into a little bit more bite-sized pieces, so they're an hour each on his podcast. I decided to go ahead, some of you enjoy having a longer format so i went ahead and made mine a two-part series each one about two hours long so this is the second part we're going to wrap it up um and again we're just going to dive into some really good topics and and just pick them apart quite a bit so this one we start out talking about archery hunting turkeys and shot placement from there we're going to continue to dive in on miriam's turkey habitat and where and how to find birds we're going to be talking about dealing with pressured and silent birds. We're going to talk about midday hunts. I'm going to ask him a little bit about some of his California hunting that he, that he used to do and his Goulds turkey hunting that he's doing. I asked him about a podcast that he did with Apex Ammunition. We're going to talk about tungsten shot a little bit and some of the innovation there. We're going to answer a couple of Colorado-specific hunting questions, and then we're going to wrap this one up having a little bit of a uh, fun discussion slash debate about what shotgun does he recommend folks start off with or or get if if you're going to buy a a shotgun for turkey hunting what does he recommend you getting and uh we kind of stumbled upon a uh a topic we might actually disagree well no not that we might actually disagree that we disagreed on so anyway if those topics sound good to you here we go. Buckle up. Uh, it's going to be another good discussion. All right. Now, again, we start off this discussion talking about archery shot placement, and you'll hear me reference in there that that I had a video posted on YouTube. It, it That's incorrect. That's not correct. It is actually in the Turkey module on the website, and I actually now have two videos on the subject, and they are both housed in the Turkey module under the extras block of videos the latest video that is in there now i just wrapped up and i did that discussion or i I did that video because of this discussion there's really no way to have a good discussion on body or on shot placement on turkeys with archery equipment without having a visual aid there so this past week I pulled out all sorts of um, video footage that I've had over the years that showed good examples of what we were talking about. And so I built a about a 42-minute video that talks specifically about bow hunting turkeys and really specifically about taking body shots on turkeys. Because if we're talking about headshots on turkeys, that becomes very self-explanatory okay the issues that we talked about in this podcast really stem from people taking body shots on birds and so that's why i did that new video the previous video the video i was referencing in this podcast is a previous video that i did here in kansas where i had the bird skinned out and i have the body cavity body cavity of the bird opened up where I can show you where the heart lung cavity is versus where the the intestinal pocket and gut pocket is in relation to where the wing butt shot is, you know, how that lines up or if people talk about the thigh shot. So 
Both of those videos are actually on the turkey module, and I highly recommend anybody that wants to bow hunt birds, bow hunt turkeys, you owe it to yourself and the bird to watch those videos. Because as far as I'm concerned, I know it sounds self-serving, but no one has done a discussion like I did in those videos anywhere else. Not that I've seen. Um, and I think it's going to be an eye opener for a lot of folks that have the idea of wanting to go out and, and hunt turkeys with a bow and where they hear the general conversations, uh, across the internet regarding turkey shot placement. Well, I think these videos, the two videos that I have on that website, on our row hunting resources website, Turkey module are going to go a long way in helping people dispel some of the myths around taking certain body shots and then being able to identify exactly where to shoot on a bird that will give you the, in a body shot, give you the highest probability of making a quick, clean, ethical, and recoverable kill. So let's dive in. That leads me to the next question we've got here. Um, Talk about archery shot placement. I'll let you run with this one, Chris. You know, let me just put it this way. Um, I think I'm going to start, I think for all of my archery hunts in the future, it's going to be limited to headshots only. I agree. Uh, um, I just, I have a video that extensively talks about, um, it's on the YouTube channel, it extensively talks about shot placement on turkeys, and I do not, for, okay, let's just talk about, for arch. you've got two general schools of thought. One, using a head chopper style broadhead, and you're going to smack them in the head with a, with a broadhead. Or you're going to take a body shot. If you're going to take a body shot, if you're just going to take a body shot, my recommendation is you throw the biggest mechanical, tur- biggest mechanical broadhead that you can. You need to put a gargantuan hole in these birds. Because their kill zone, they're effective, very quick, ethical, humane, and recoverable, consistently recoverable kill zone is about the size of a peach. Small peach, large plum. Now, you people that are listening to this, you know, kill turkeys before, you're like, oh, their body cavity is bigger. Yeah, their body cavity is bigger than that. But most of it's full of guts and gizzard and will you kill a turkey running a broadhead through the guts yes you will will you recover that bird that's a good question so you'll hear people talk about shooting them in the wing butt in the shoulder you'll or and and the theory is if you break that wing then the the broad the broadhead goes in the body you break the wing they can't fly off and you can you know the bird either dies or you can you can run them down and chase them down and catch them okay but the problem is where the wing butt is where the shoulder is there are depending on the angle in which you shoot there are no vitals up there except maybe his trachea so if you get lucky and you break and you cut his trachea okay that's great but if you miss the trachea you're not hitting anything vital you've just broken his wing and no, he can't fly, but he's going to take off running, and good luck. If the other school thought was shooting him in the drumstick, in the high thigh, 
portion of the body. Break the pelvis, break the, the upper drum, the, the upper thigh bone. If you can break that pelvis, you can break the bone, they can't run very effectively, and they can't jump very effectively if you break if you break the pelvis. Now, if you, if you just break one leg and you don't bust the pelvis, you just break one leg, no, they can still jump up enough to fly, and they can hop really darn fast and flop really darn fast, and they can disappear on you. That location of that pelvis and the thigh bone is in the gut pocket. So is the bird going to die? Yes. Are you going to recover him? Good question. So I talk about a shot placement that is halfway between the where the thigh bone is and where the shoulder wing butt is. It, it's difficult to talk about without showing visuals, um, but in general, if you look at a turkey's wing, there's those bronze feathers, the, the band of bronze feathers on the, the, the right above the primaries and, and secondary feathers. If you draw a line between the shoulder with the insertion point where the wing goes into the body you'll see the crease of feathers where the where everything the where his wing disappears into his body at the shoulder and then you draw a line to the top edge of those bronze feathers and then go about halfway in between that is the heart lung area on the turkey and the important thing for people to understand is our heart and lungs in most mammals our heart and lungs are protected by our rib cage. On a bird, and, and so, and our lungs are inside the body cavity, free floating on their own. On a bird, the lungs are actually interlaced in between the ribs, and the ribs are pretty darn substantial. Those ribs are attached to the spinal column. So if you and, and I'm trying to, it, it, I know it's on my, it, it's on the, the turkey module. I did, I've not seen it here on the YouTube channel, but I, I, I spend time with a, with a skinned out turkey with its wing and everything. So I'm showing you that if you go halfway between that shoulder insertion point and the top edge of the bronze feathers, in general, no matter how a bird is, orienting his body, whether he's upright or whether he's in full strut, oftentimes the spine follows pretty darn well where if you draw a line between those two points and you go halfway between, you'll hit the heart and lungs, but more importantly, in order when you hit the lungs, you're going to go through those ribs, and when you go through those ribs, you are going to sever the backbone. That bird, that bird hits like a ton of bricks. It just hits like a ton of bricks. I'm working on a video right now from my personal hunt last year, and, and if I can, over this next, I'm, I'm going to be dead in the water on doing any habitat improvements over this next week because we're getting rain right now. I will try, Jay, do me a favor and remind me to make this happen. I need to put that video up on YouTube um, because I did a double. I had two birds come in. Two. I had two birds come in. One, the first bird came in all by himself, smacked him, made it absolute perfect flawless shot that bird dropped like a ton of, ton of bricks and i hit that bird exactly where i'm talking 
I went out and recovered that bird, came back in it. Another bird gobbled while I'm sitting there talking to my buddy. I'm like, well, here we go. And I jumped back in the ground blind, called the second bird in. The second bird comes in. I am aiming. I'm going to take the exact same body shot. And I was just a mere two inches off. And if it had not been for my buddy, no way I would have gotten that bird because we ended up filing out of that ground blind and we were in a little island of trees. My buddy was smart enough. He saw what was going on and he bailed out of the ground blind. He was able to go. We, we ran around that island in opposite directions and he cut that bird off because that bird was about to run down the river bottom. No way was I going to be able to keep up with him. Would the bird have died? Yeah, somewhere question is is whether i would have recovered it we were able to pin him down i was able to get him to pull up in a, in a brush pile and i was able to go in and and get another shot on him and, and get him i i can i and jay i know you've seen this and, and i'm dead serious when i say this i think from now on starting 2021 i think all of my archery hunts will be headshot hunting only because it doesn't take you're off by one or two inches and you can run an arrow through the body cavity, but you're, you have a low percentage play of whether you're actually going to recover that bird. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, the reality is I've seen way more birds run off than die from bows. And I've seen a lot die from bows. Um, what I've kind of come to, I've had a bunch of people, you know, send me messages on the ghouls and I say head and neck shots only if you touch the bird. If you hit the bird in any way, it's your bird, whether you get it or not. And I'm sorry I have to be this strict, but my birds are very, very precious to me and I don't have the ability to ding two birds yeah. and get one. So I, I And that's and, and that's and I don't and I, I apologize. I don't I don't I'm not trying to cut you off, but I I want people to understand that. I don't think they understand it that well. Um because when you're on public land or you're just doing your own thing and you're out chasing birds and it's just you, uh, you know, or just you and your buddy on a, a chunk of ground, it's, it's oftentimes easy to think, well, okay, well, you know, oh, I lost that bird, but I can go get another bird. Well, yeah, you can. But how many birds are out there? I mean, seriously, how many birds are out there on your landscape? And there's, and if you're on public ground, how many other people are out there as well and, and how many birds are dying that are not being recovered and for me so you are it's 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 incredibly important because what people understand is you're paying for each one of those birds right you i have to pay have for it yeah if, if the rancher finds a dead bird i pay yeah. for it so it's yeah, not like we can exactly. ding two or three of them in a week and be like well we didn't get them when that cowboy yeah. rides up and finds it which they will but i would have already reported it at that point anyway I got to pay for it. So, yeah. And, and I think it's even more than that, Chris. I mean, I think we owe every animal we shoot at, we owe them the quickest death possible. And quite honestly, I, I mean, I've been around some of the best archers in the world and I've taken some of the best archers in the world and they're phenomenal shots and they can hit that small little plum spot. Like Chris is talking about nine times out of 10, but I've seen a lot of them get away, and I know they're eventually dying. So I say head and neck only with expandable or Magnus bullhead type, lop the head off. You know, if you hit with pretty much any broadhead, you hit that neck region, that bird's dead. If you hit the, the head region, that bird's dead. I don't really care what broadhead you have. If you hit that, it's going to die. If you clip the neck, 
If you cut the windpipe, if you hit the brain, it, it's going to die. So I've basically told a few guys that have inquir- inquired about this year, next year, 2022, I'm sorry, it's, I'll take archers, but it's head and neck only, and if you don't like that, go somewhere else. And my reality of someone who, you know, we were scheduled to shoot 75 birds this year, you know, for the last 10 years, you know, I've seen a lot of birds die every year, you know, 40, 50, 60 birds a year. And, and others out there, other outfitters in, you know, Merriam's and Rio's are seeing 100, 150 Osceola's, a lot of birds. The reality is it's not a great weapon of choice for a turkey because the margin of error is so great. If you don't hit that plum-sized, you are probably killed it, but it's you'll probably never find it. So, and I, I know I'll get emails on this, and I don't care. I have enough experience. Chris has enough experience to go ahead, and it seems like the older I get, the more I kind of like, I know you can kill a turkey with a bow, but why? Why do you have to try and shoot it with a bow when most of the time people I know shoot two or three before they get the one that they kill? That's the reality. Most people that archery hunt turkeys, for every one they kill, they wound one. I'm not into that. I, I just, I'm not into that. So head and neck shot, and I think the turkey, to be honest with you, is a perfect shotgun animal. Like, it's a perfect animal to shoot in the face, in the neck, with a shotgun. And we owe it to the animal to kill him as quickly as possible. You talk about high leg and, you know, go up the leg and shoot the bronze patch and all that. How many birds that you've seen in your career shot with a bow that you're chasing through the, the landscape, chasing them? You're literally trying to jump on them. You're trying to... You know, hedge them. You're trying to chase them. For every one you killed, I guarantee there's one or two that you're chasing. Yeah, it. it I mean, that's the thing is it happens. Now, I'm a bow hunter. I love. I do love bow hunting turkeys. Um, but uh, well, there's a simple it, solution: it, just head or neck shot them, and and then it's either correct. a dead miss or it's a 99 percent that you're going to kill them. Yeah, it, exactly. I mean, I yeah, and and I. The reason why this has really hit me lately is because I, I have the same policy on my hunts, whether it's deer hunts or turkey hunts, and it's in the paperwork. It says, you know, you and I, I have it to where people initial next to each bullet item, and, and this is one. If you draw blood on that animal, that is, that's your animal. And you have to because you just don't want somebody out there just flinging arrows and, or just slinging bullets and just wounding everything out there in, in, you know, on the landscape. So, but... And the thing is, is people, and I know that you've dealt with it, people have no problem sitting there at the house or the lodge or whatever and signing that. And you're like, yep, 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 yep. No, I understand. Absolutely. That makes sense. I, I completely understand that. And then the, then the situation happens. And the arrow goes through the body cavity of a bird. The bird takes off. Or the arrow goes through the whitetail and the blood trail runs out and we can't find them. And it's day two of a seven-day hunt. Or it's the first day of their three-day turkey hunt. And they're only, they've only bought one bird. Or, like, in my area, I've restricted everybody this year, to most everybody, to, to one bird. Uh, because our population isn't as robust as it used to be. So now, it's on day one, and you just put an arrow through a bird. 
and the people are like, well, well, but that one, he should be fine. I, I, it should be fine. It really wasn't. It, it's like, okay, we're not going to backpedal and we're not going to play this game. We, that's why I went through this with you in the beginning and you understood and agreed that if you draw blood on, if the arrow goes through the body cavity of that animal, that's your bird. Well, but you know, if it survives, what? Well, like, okay, here we go. It, it becomes this issue of, golly, we, like, we, can't, I don't have the number of birds to have a, I don't have the number of birds to have a twenty percent wounding loss. I right. don't. I, I really want to maximize it as much as possible. So, I think we're going to just limit it to head and neck only. But you, you can. I don't want to discourage people from taking body shots. If you take a body shot and you know where you're hitting. It's deadly, but all you have to be is plus or minus a couple inches, and geez, oh, Pete, now here we go. That's why I say use the biggest honking mechanic. There's turkey mechanical broadheads or mechanical broadheads made for turkey hunting. There are massive. Use them. The bigger the hole you put through that bird, the faster they shut down, the more likely you're going to recover them. If you're just I, – I, anybody who listens to me knows I love iron wheel broadheads. I shoot them for almost all of my big game hunting. I do not use an iron wheel head for turkey hunting. It's just too small for me in a high percentage play of recovery. You want a big honking mechanical. Yeah, because it's not a penetra- it's not a penetration issue. It's a yeah. You wanna, no, you wanna no. In, you know implode the bird. You basically want to punch a softball size hole through the bird and have as much trauma to that bird as quickly as you possibly can. Because even if you yeah. don't hit the sweet spot, but you have inflicted a giant hole in the bird, a lot of times you can run after them and jump on them and stand on their head. If you go with speed and go slicing through them very, very quickly, yeah, I mean, you're not going to find them. You're, you're, you're yeah. not going to find them. Let's, let's move yeah. on here. All right. Now, let me pause here and just clarify. Okay. You absolutely can kill birds quickly and efficiently with body shots. You just need to know the place to hit. So again, if you want to take a body shot on a turkey, you owe it to yourself to watch the new video I just posted to the turkey module on the Row Hunting Resources website and absolutely commit that spot that I talk about to your memory. And one of the best ways you can do that is watch some of the footage in that video that I share. Go to Jay Scott's YouTube channel. Watch all of the videos he has on that YouTube channel and just watch the birds, how they interact around those decoys and just pick out that spot. Identify the wing butt. Identify that top edge of the bronze band of feathers. Identify that spot that I talk about and just commit that to memory. Because when you get out in the field, if you know it, and I mean you subconsciously know it, you're going to be so much better off when you're getting ready to take your shot. Your confidence level is going to be high. And then if you execute effectively, the probability of you making a very quick inefficient recovery is exceptionally high. We owe it to ourselves and our hunt and we owe it to the birds. So anyway, just wanted to provide that little bit of a clarification. You, uh, Jay and I are discouraged by what we have seen in the field by the hunters that we have had the privilege and fun 
opportunity to hunt with and guide, but it doesn't mean it can't be done correctly if you know where exactly to shoot and why. Okay, hopefully hunting a new unit this spring, land features, terrain, vegetation to look for. Where, where, say that, okay, say that again. Where is he, where are they hunting? Uh, pick, it says, hopefully I'll be hunting a new unit this spring. Land features, terrain, vegetation to look for. So he didn't tell me which state, he didn't tell me, but let's just assume it's someone hunting Merriam's, hopefully hunting a new unit this spring, land features, terrain, vegetation to look for. Go ahead. Yeah, go, go ahead, Jay. Go ahead. Go so, ahead. Dive in. land features and terrain. Um, if we're specifically talking Merriam's turkeys, um, I am going to look for my favorite thing to hunt Merriam's turkeys is ponderosa pine. Uh, I like ponderosa pine forests, and it doesn't necessarily have to be solid pines, but I like having those areas. Uh, where you've got some, you know, like big open meadows, and then you've got stringers of pines maybe down in the little canyons. Uh, and then I also like, you know, the, the straight ponderosa where everything around you is solid ponderosa pine. Land features that I look for when I'm looking at a new unit for turkeys specifically are, I want to know where the water is. Turkeys in, in specifically Arizona, New Mexico, um, they need water in some of these units where snow, you know, kind of comes and goes and, you know, by turkey season, it's pretty darn popcorn fart dry around. I want to know where the water is, whether it be live water or stock tanks or windmills or, or, or whatever. I want to know where the water is. The next thing I look for is what type of terrain are they going to be roosting in? A lot of times turkeys like contour breaks. They like ridge lines. So if I can find an area that has nice, long, predominant type ridge lines, where if you were to walk uh, on top, you know, maybe it's 30 to 50 yards, um, kind of a flatter type top, and then it drops off on both sides. That gives a great area for birds to be up on those tops, strutting around and feeding and doing all whatever they're going to do. And then they can glide right off the sides and roost along those ridgelines. Turkeys, especially Merriams, typically like to roost on those contour breaks, on those ridgeline areas. Um, so that's what I'm going to look for when I'm, when I'm looking at a new unit. Uh, I like to go a couple weeks before the season and I'm specifically going to be looking for tracks. The way I look for tracks is I like to go to these water holes. I like to identify them on my Onyx maps or on my Google uh, Earth. And then I like to mark them on my Onyx. And then I like to actually visit those tanks and make a circle around the tank and look for tracks, whether it be in the mud, uh, up at the water's edge or the dust or the dirt or snow or whatever was around the tank. I want to find as many turkey tracks and turkey droppings as I can look for feathers. I also like to get out and walk along roads and in the bar ditch right next to the road a lot of times you'll see tracks and a lot of times birds if you are whether it be a main like county gravel road or a two-track road if you spend enough time walking, you're going to end up seeing a lot of sign and a lot of tracks. So 
I am looking for sign. I'm looking for sign at their water. Uh, and then what I'm going to be doing a couple weeks before the season in a new unit is I'm going to be covering country, trying to figure out and, and locate as many birds where they roost as possible. So in any given morning or evening, um, a lot of times during the day is when I'm looking at water holes, I'm lo walking, looking for tracks, but I spend the morning and the evening and I'm going to say the, the 30 minutes before the sun comes up while the sun's coming up and 30 minutes after the sun comes up in the morning listening i like to be up on those same ridge lines listening where i can hear a big expanse a big area of country in the evenings i'm doing the same thing i'm i'm listening uh, say an hour before it gets dark i'm just listening at a canyon's edge where i can hear and see several fingers uh, looking across a canyon where there's several ridge lines where, I've, you know, they've got lots of options to roost. And I'm trying to basically roost as many birds as I can prior to my season. And I'm trying to establish where are those roosting sites that the birds typically like to hang out so that by the time the season starts, I've got 7, 8, 10, 12, 14, 30 roost sites where I've heard birds and I've pinpointed on my onyx and I've marked on my onyx. Then as, and the other thing that I'm looking for in land features and geography is I'm looking for where are places where people that drive on a main forest or county road can just stop and hear the same birds that I'm listening to. So a lot of times I'll pick ridge lines that have been blocked off by the forest service or areas that are not accessible by a vehicle. And if I can find birds in those type of areas, I know that I have a better chance that possibly people won't be on those birds. I also like to cover ground in my vehicle with my coyote howler, driving and stopping and blowing the coyote howler and covering as much country in a small amount of time as I can. You only have about... 20 to 30 minutes of prime time when they're up on the limb, up on the roost where they're going to be gobbling uh, after it gets dark. So you want to cover from that fly up time to say 30 minutes, even 45 minutes after that, just driving, stopping every half mile, blowing the coyote howler. If you get a bird or two to answer, mark it as best you can and then just keep going and, you know, I'll cover in that 30 minutes, I'll drive around like a madman trying to establish as many roosted birds as possible. Chris, I'll let you go for a while. No, you, you, you nailed it, dude. Um, and while I, I wanted you to tackle it because I've been, I, I always, I always talk, but I wanted to see just how close you and I were on this. The funny thing is, is everything that you just said is exactly what I do. And again, if people want to see it, that you, if people have not been to your YouTube channel and all the stuff that all the turkey, turkey stuff that you have there, they need to go there. And if you want to watch everything Jay just said, pretty much me doing it from eight years ago again watch that same video that big you can go to my youtube channel it's just it's 
It's a long, you got to scroll back. Big New Mexico, Marion's Turkey. The entire thing about that YouTube, it's 30 minutes long, roughly 30 minutes long. The entire video is talking about this exact thing. And Jay, you nailed it. I mean, right, and the funny part is, it's right down to, okay, I've got multiple birds. Which one am I going to go to and set up on? I'm going to go to the one off to the side or further back in because I'm going to play the bet that any other public land guy that's going to come up this valley or gal is going to come up this valley, they're going to hit the first bird, and they're going to go straight to the first bird that's goblet. Let all the other people fight over that bird. I'll go two or three birds further back in with the, with the hope that at least I have an hour in the morning to play with those birds before the rest of the hunters work their way up in those ridges or in that valley. It, it, you nailed it. it, it you nailed it. So it's perfect, dude. It, it was perfect. Well, something oh. else Something else that come to my mind, too, is if you're hunting with buddies and, you know, you're camped and, you know, you go out and let's say the season and boom, you got your bird. I'm one, you know, sometimes guys are like, man, can't we just enjoy this? I'm like, I'm enjoying it right now. Get in the truck. Let's go. We're going to listen off different <laughs> points because I'm trying to roost birds for everybody else that I'm hunting with. Or I'm, I'm trying to go, hey, you didn't do any good. Well, after I shot my bird, we drove, we walked out to a point. We just sat down there for 15, 20, 30 minutes and we listened and we heard three different birds. You know, you, you've got a place. We'll go back there this afternoon. We've got a place to start. So I'm documenting the whole time that I'm hunting, whether I'm scouting or hunting, I'm documenting, trying to establish, trying to get as many hotspots as I can, trying to get as many known locations of gobblers so that we have, you know, because a lot of times on public ground, you're going to, your first five birds are going to be shot. You'll pull up and there'll be a vehicle parked there and you've got to have other places to go. So I never rest. I want, I'm wanting to at prime time, I'm never going, ah, let's just drive back and we're not even going to stop. No, half the time I've stopped, you know, seven, eight, ten times back to camp just trying to hear other birds for anyone else that I would be hunting with. And I'm just kind of a junkie that way. I just, I love hearing new birds. There's, I don't know how to explain it, but there's something about stopping, walking out, just, you know, 30 seconds walking out a minute out to a canyon edge and just sitting there and blowing a coyote howler and having a bird gobble. I mean, I'm, I've been doing this a long time and I make, I'm as excited now about a bird gobbling on a limb as I was when I first started. And for those turkey hunters out there that have the passion for it, they know exactly what we're talking about, Chris, when we talk about, you know, I get as excited, you know, I'll see you know, depends on how this coronavirus is, but I'll probably see personally 45 or 50 birds get shot myself this year. And it's the same feeling every time I have yet to get where it's just like, eh, it's another bird. Let's go. Like I get all yeah, exactly. amped up. I get adrenaline. I get, you know, just, I, I get that feeling. And I guess until that feeling goes away, you know, I've, I've never encountered a situation that you know where we call in a bird and it gets shot where i'm not just super amped and it's the coolest thing i you know that's how much i enjoy it i hope that everyone listening is able to get to a point where they have enough success that they can feel that one of one of the things i struggled um you know early on it was hard and luckily i stayed with it 
Um, but I just fear some people out there have a tough hunt or two or three or four years and they don't fully engage. I would encourage you. Turkey hunting is one of those things that once you really get into it, it's, it's a lifelong passion for sure. Oh yeah. 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 Um, now two things came to mind when you were talking there. Number one, don't misconstrue the fact that by about day 30, nonstop day 30 of turkey hunting, I might not want to roll out of bed as, as eagerly at three <laughs> o'clock in the morning like I did on opening day, but we're, but every time that bird gobbles and then I'm and, the, and here they come strutting in, it's like oh yeah, that's why I'm doing this. That's right. Now I remember. Yeah. So it, yeah, it's one thing. It's funny because all the time you know, um, you, you know, my well, your hunts too. It's three day long hunts. You know what I mean? So the, everybody shows up. It is funny for uh, for me out here is I tell people, okay, show up on the evening of this day, and then our hunt starts the next morning, and then there we go. Well, you know, I put a day between my hunts because I've got to get a bunch of stuff done between, you know, just logistically. But invariably, invariably, someone will send me a text that, you know, I said, show up this evening before your hunt. Okay. It's noon. And they're like, we're 30 minutes out. We'll be right there. He's like. Oh, I've, I've got like all day. I've, I've got to get stuff done, but people are just, you're, our hunters are coming out there on vacation and they're just camped and, and just going crazy. They're just ready for the hunt. And it's awesome. And that energy also is what helps drive the whole thing. And I agree with you. There are some people that say, oh, I just don't understand the turkey hunting thing. I just don't get it. Then, then you need to, I don't care what you think about outfitters or guided hunts or whatever. You know what? And, and just book a hunt. Go book a hunt with a good outfitter so you can experience what it actually is like. So you don't go out and flounder for it. I mean, if, if you wanted just a taste of it, just go book a hunt and get a good taste of it. Get the juices flowing and then go out and, and have fun. Because once you enjoy, once you taste what good turkey hunting can be like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. The other thing, too, is, now, I will say this. I agree with everything you said. But if you're on public ground, I, I say this all the time with, with bugling and with elk. Be careful. We all love to hear a bird gobble. We all love to hear a bull elk bugle. But if you're on public ground and that bird's gobbling and you're getting them cranked up, say you're roosting them the night before, if there's other people out there listening and you're just blowing the coyote howl just because you want to hear him gobble, understand you're you're letting everybody else on the landscape know where that bird is as well. So definitely go out and, and shock gobble birds and, and figure out where they are. But if he gobbles once and you're like, man, he's right there, don't just keep him cranking for the sake of just keeping him cranking. Because all you're going to do is just shoot yourself in the foot the next morning when you know, four other people are all, you know, set up on the same ridge around it. You know what I mean? So you got it. It's fun to listen to them. To, it's fun to listen to them gobble on the roost. But uh, if you're on public ground in a, in an especially a heavily hunted area, just be careful on how much you get him fired up because you might end up calling in other hunters as well. Yeah. I mean, I would even reiterate, if you're out on a point edge and you hear some birds and you hear and you hear them fly up 
and then you pull up your binos and your spot and there's a gobbler and he's kind of getting settled on his limb and he hasn't gobbled or anything, do not. If you see the <laughs> gobbler, do not call to the gobbler. You see him. There is no need to get him to gobble. Correct. Do not Correct. leave him alone. The more, and, and I will argue with anybody about this, the night before, let's say you're far enough away, they're not going to, like, they're not seeing you or anything. But if you're just screwing with the bird and just getting them to answer and getting them to, you're, hoo, 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 and then you're doing the coyote and then, oh, let's see if we'll answer a peacock and then let's see if we'll answer the truck door. I see people do this. I've seen it and I'm like, why? We'll see if we'll answer the crow. Why? Let's see if we'll answer the bugle. Why? Like, we're going to hunt that bird. And they're like, oh, yes. it, it doesn't yes. matter. They don't have a memory. They, they, they won't remember. I'm like, dude, you haven't done this long enough. I guarantee you we go set up on that bird in the morning and you've just blown him, you know, made him blow his top off all night long to every sound you make. You don't think they remember that? I argue. Heck, yeah, they do. They know well, if someone's if, if dinking not, if with them. Else, yeah, if, if nothing else, you're just going to make it hard. You're just going to make it harder for you later on. Yeah, not to mention everybody in the county who hasn't heard a bird gobble, and you're just ripping this thing off of the limb trying to, you know, he's gobbling at everything you do. You're just attracting attention. Yeah, exactly. Well, it, here's a question for you. Um, I was going to say, what next question do you have? Because quite honestly, that topic that we're talking about right now dovetails with exactly the question I just got today where uh, that hunter, he was from uh, up in Oregon, and he was saying that, you know, he was mountain birds. They were hunting a, a particular area that did not used to have a lot of high, you know, a lot of pressure. And the birds were gobbling and, and they had a successful hunt and they had a blast. And it was just a great, you know, your, your picture perfect type of uh, turkey hunt. Fast forward now a couple of years and they're coming back in there and they know that it now has heavy pressure. And he's been up there and he's like, I can't, I can't get a bird to gobble at all i don't i don't hear anything now the, my number one question with him was you know would be okay are you seeing tracks you know i mean if if all of a sudden the birds are, have gone silent the question is are the birds there now we you and i've just on this i don't know how i don't even have a clue how many whether you're going to leave this in one podcast or we're going to have to split this up into another seven part series but uh you know we previously talked about birds following the snow line and, and how they move in the winter and the spring. And so obviously this person needs to think about all those things and whether the birds are even there in that area as of yet based on snowpack and spring green up and stuff. But I see this all the time. And that's why I think it's relevant for this topic is so many people go out there and call it. And, and we were just talking, you know, Jay, you were just talking, we were just talking about, you know, shot gobbling them. But the other thing that comes up, and I tell people all the time, do not just go when you're scouting. Don't go out there running on ridges, you know, with a box call or a mouth diaphragm or a slate. Don't be going out there and calling, using hen sounds, turkey sounds, calling just to scout. And I'm talking like two weeks before season, a week before season. Leave them alone. Out there and getting, leave them alone and don't, don't. If you want, if you need them to, if you need them to gobble in order for you to know where they are, then use a shot gobble. Don't use a hen sound because they're they're 
at this time, they're trying to figure out where everybody is on the landscape. And I see people calling. This is where I will agree to, for those people to say, oh, you're calling too much and too often. Yeah. If you're, if you're in a preseason scenario and you're just out calling to find birds, the more they respond to a hen sound, they gobble, and then you move on. Well, they're there all day. That bird may gobble two, three, four, 20 times at you and then shut up. And you're like, oh, that was awesome. And then you move on. Well, maybe over the next three hours, that bird walks his way up the ridge trying to find the bird he was just gobbling to. And he doesn't find anybody. He can't find anybody, and no one flies up that evening. All of a sudden, this hen that he was, he was gobbling at just vanishes off the face of the earth. Well, you may go down the, the ridge and be gone that day, but tomorrow, here comes another person doing the exact same thing. And then the next day, another person, exact same thing. The more times a bird responds to a hen sound and then does not have a hen either show up or he can't find a hen, only predisposes him later on to not vocalize to a hen sound. He'll stay tight-lipped and he won't say anything and he might just come in silence. So we end up doing a disservice for our own hunts, let alone other people's hunts. Because that's the thing, and Jay, I know for a fact you've heard this because I've been down there and, and working with you. When you deal with, when you get to hunt with people from all over the United States, I cannot tell you how many times you'll hear people say, oh, well, Rio Grande turkeys are easy. Oh, well, Merriam's are easy. Oh, Gould's turkeys are easy. Nothing compares to an eastern you know, a eastern turkey in Mississippi or eastern wild turkey in Pennsylvania or this or eastern baloney. Nothing compares an educated bird versus an uneducated bird. Yeah, I think uneducated birds are fun and easy. Educated birds, no matter the subspecies, are a nightmare. So don't educate them. Yeah, I mean, leave them alone. Uh, you know, the, the least human interaction that you can have, the better, uh, for sure. And, you know, going to your guy from Oregon's question, um, going back to it, just some thoughts that are coming through my head are, hey, man, things might have changed. That You might need to find a new area. Don't, don't waste your whole season if you're up there scouting and you're like, there's no birds here, we don't hear any, we, you know, but are you there, you know, is this question coming right now? Because we're in March. They're not, nothing's going to be happening. I mean, typically that Oregon, Washington area, you know, it's a real, you know, late April, a lot of great hunting in May situation. So maybe they're just not vocal. Maybe they're not gobbling yet. But like Chris yeah, said, if you're not seeing the sign, if you're not seeing the tracks, your spot may not be any good anymore. You might need to move on and find another spot. I mean... Don't go your whole season going off of two or three years ago knowledge of, oh, yeah, we had a really good hunt. You might have just had one really good year where there was a, um, you know, a good recruitment. There was a bunch of birds and maybe something happened. You know, maybe, a, you know, the pressure moved in and maybe they whacked a bunch of birds and maybe the birds moved off. So I would be covering country trying to find pockets of birds and I don't know what the saying is, but basically don't waste your hunt on the honey hole that's no longer a honey hole. 
Yeah, don't don't hunt them where you want them to be. Hunt them where they are. Exactly. I think that's that's very well said. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly, and that is exactly what I. If if he was if we were talking to him now, that's what I'd say is okay. Number one, let's let's look at your snowpack. Let's look at your weather. Are the birds in? Do they have the ability to be at that location elevationally? right now or not if because i agree it's a little early maybe they've had a a spring thaw and maybe things are are going well there or it's a lower elevation area and things are greening up and and this is the time that the birds should be there okay that's fine but just evaluate that spring green up where are the birds going to be based on that spring green up number one number two same thing jay I, i i'm literally thinking of the places i used to hunt in colorado on the rampart range um, it, there was a couple places that used to be absolutely incredible. I used to kill birds there every single year consistently. And now it is a sea of turkey hunters and it's very difficult to find a bird in there because the birds have literally moved and they're occupying different areas now that are, are a little bit more inaccessible. So because of hunter pressure, and uh, just pressure in general, you may actually see a shift in movement and behavior and where they are on the landscape. So, like you said, Jay, you need to be out there. Don't rely on vocalizations, per se. You need to be out there. Snow. You know, are you seeing tracks in snow? Are you seeing tracks in muddy, soft areas? Are you seeing strut marks on the gravel, dirt roads? How many times are you down in Mexico? I know I am out here with Rio's. You're driving down a road, or you're driving, you're going down a two track, or whatever. You all of a sudden you just see the strut marks in the road, in the dirt. I mean, that right there, that visual sign. Are you seeing droppings? Are you, you know, people will say, "Are you looking for feathers?" I don't. I'm not a big fan of looking for feathers because a they can blow away, and or, well, he may have a bird may have been molting last fall and dropped that wing feather there and it's going to stay there so feathers can be a little tricky as far as scouting sign is concerned but fresh droppings tracks are you seeing sign and if and if the answer is no well then the birds have got to be they're not there yet or you just got to keep looking but if you are seeing sign okay then you know the birds are there and that's where if they're going if they're not going to gobble and i talk about this extensively on the on the turkey module part about different sizes of populations will have different effects if you have a a, an area that has a good population of birds and oftentimes you'll hear more gobbling because those birds are used to the fact that there's other birds around and there's there's mixing of birds but if you're an area that has a very very tiny population those birds may spend all year together summer and winter they might not bust up and they might absolutely know that there are no other birds on this landscape. And so all of a sudden they hear new turkey sounds and they're like, what is that? Who the heck? It, it stands out as an anomaly. And so they instantly become very, very cautious. So there's some reasons biologically why the birds might be tight lipped as well. Um, it, it all depends on what the, the, excuse me, the survivability of some of the adults was and what the hatch success was. If you have an area that has a lot of two-year-olds, Say a good air. Say you say your state agency just did a, a turkey reintroduction into an area, or birds are pioneering into an area, and the habitat's great, and the hatch success is good, or they released a bunch of young birds into an area, and you've got a bunch of two-year-olds out there. Well, statistically, two-year-olds gobble a lot more 
than maybe a single mature Tom will. So in those years where you stumble into a good nest success, a a good hatch, where all of a sudden now, two years later, you've got a pile of of two-year-olds out there, you're going to hear a pile of gobbles. But you may have a year where you had really piss poor nest success or back-to-back years like we had out here, where all of a sudden now, you don't have young birds on the landscape. All you have is a four- or five-year-old bird out there, and there may be only one or two. Boy, you better be in the right spot to hear them gobbling or the right time of the season to hear them gobbling because they're just not gobbling that much because they've got all the hens they can handle. So you've got to kind of play with what the turkey population in your area is doing. And sometimes for some of these areas that are in the mountains with ponderosa pine, and this is something else I thought of, I don't know about his area, but has it been affected by some of what we've seen in the past years about the beetle kill, the beetle infestation? If your timber habitats have changed dramatically, well, then the birds are going to adjust and shift their activity areas to where they're going to have better pine forests, where you're going to have better pine seed production. So there's a lot of things that go into trying to figure out what's going on with your birds. But the bottom line is, this time, if you're talking about mountains right now, where's the snow line? Where's the green up? And are you finding tracks, strut marks, or can you at least lay eyes on birds, like you said, Jay, flying up on a roost? A lot of these mountain areas, you can be on that point, that bald spot, and you can cover ground with a set of binoculars. So, yeah. Was, was there any more to his question or any follow-up question that he had, or did we cover that, it? I mean, that, that was, yeah, that was the gist of this, like, what the heck, you know, what, what do I do, you know, how do I go about trying to figure out where these birds are, and, and I think that's it. I, you got to put some boot leather on the ground and just start finding signs. Don't worry about trying to get a bird to gobble, just are, are they even there? You know, still use the, the shotgun, you know, still use the locator call and hope to get lucky. They just might be a much smaller population. They might be a hell of a lot more educated, and they just might be a little bit more tight-lipped. So take that place apart if it is, from a seasonal standpoint, if that is where those birds are likely to be now. If you've got a bunch of snow, they might be a hell of a lot farther down the mountain than you think. Another question here. Best time during the day to set up and call turkeys? Man. I've killed more birds late morning. I think I think I've killed more birds in the middle part of the day than I have killed off in the morning or evening. I love if if no if you have to if no other consideration, midday hunts can be awesome. If you have the legal ability to do so, there's some you know, New York you have to stop at at noon. Uh, some other states like one p.m. If you have the ability to hunt all day, sometimes those midday hours are awesome. Where do you set up, and what's your strategy? I'm going to be set up towards where the, you know, again, this goes right, this circles right back around to what we talked about in the beginning of of their pattern, how they move across the landscape. Um, I'm going to be moving, uh, I'm not going to be necessarily near near a roost site. I'm going to be out in those areas where they tend to move off and loaf during the middle of the day. For me out here, we deal with a lot of wind, and I know there's a lot of places deal with a lot of wind if you're dealing with a lot of wind one of the best places i've always looked is those sheltered protected pockets 
for us, it's river bottoms and cedars. So some river bottoms will have these, you know, maybe a bend in the river and there's a, you know, a, a cut or a bluff or something like that where there's a big terrain break in the river bottom where the wind just goes up and over the trees and it just becomes a, a protected little pocket down underneath. Windy days, windy conditions in the middle of the day, those things can be dynamite. Same thing with cedar thickets. You get a big area of, of cedars. When if the wind is howling, sometimes they'll get into those cedars and the wind just goes right up and over those cedars. And it's nice and calm and, and they can get out of the wind and they can be in the sun and just kind of mill around down there. And it's, it's a great place to be in the middle of the day. I'm, I'm probably going to be several hundred yards away from where they typically roost. Good stuff. Uh, Chris, do you have any questions on your end that have come in or anything that you feel like we didn't cover? I think we, I really do think we touched on most of them. I did have a couple questions for you, though, uh, because even though you invite me on to this podcast, I do listen to your podcast. And I was, there's two things. That it's nice I to know I have of. one listener. Hey, I just, I just keep clicking like, I, I just grab every <laughs> phone I download. I just try to, I just try to get, you know, I, what was that, you know? I can't wait till election season. So my three uh, downloads are all from you on three different phones. <laughs> correct, correct. Hey, did I bump you up to three this year? That's uh, awesome. Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, well, first and, first and foremost, this is just a personal question to you. You used, and I think I know the answer, but I'm just kind of curious. So you used to do a lot of Rio Grande hunting in California. Why don't you do that anymore? So for probably... I don't know, seven, eight, nine years. Um, I used to go over and hunt uh, in central California where I was born. We moved to Arizona when I was one, but I have family and my family has a bunch of uh, friends and such there in central California. And I used to go over, would be the, it would be right now, I'd be the last Saturday in March. Uh, would be the uh, opener of turkey season in California and just absolutely loved it. Um, the family that we hunted primarily with there, um, a few little changes and such with the property to make a long story short, it just kind of got to where, um, you know, I had other family members hunting and it just, it, it wasn't as good as it used to be. So it kind of stopped doing that. But my nephews also used to live in Southern California, so it was a real easy trip for me to drive over there, pick them up when they were little tykes. Um, now they're both, you know, one six four and six three six four, and the other one's, you know, six six, big giant men. But uh, yeah, when they were just little guys, I'd pick them up and basically do a two or three day turkey hunt, so I could pick them up. Maybe they'd miss a half day of school, and you know, we could hunt. Uh, Saturday and Sunday morning and have them back to their moms um, and just kind of got out of a rhythm of doing that but you know always the last couple of years when I haven't done it you know I see the California pictures of just the bright green grass you know just the beautiful um, pink flowers and just all of the you know that 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 area of the country in the spring is just dynamic it's a beautiful place if you ever get a chance to hunt california for turkeys you should and it's a multiple bird state at the time i think this has changed but at the time um you could only hunt till i believe 4 p.m so we actually couldn't do uh evening hunts 
Uh, but the turkey hunting was phenomenal. They were real grand turkeys. And yeah, I mean, I miss it every year. I need to get back over there. I need, if anybody's listening out, you know, if there's more than three people that listen to this podcast, uh, if you've got ground, good ground in central California, um, you need, you know, it's funny how I get contact from people. They don't even turkey hunt and they're like, oh, I'm just full of turkeys. You can come out and hunt. But if, if, Chris and I will will volunteer to come out and hunt your property in California if you've got them. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Yeah, so, but I love California for uh, turkey hunting. It's just beautiful. We had incredible time there. And, you know, my nephews, they kind of, that's how they learn to hunt, and they both like to hunt. Um, My youngest couple of nephews, they were there they were too little to go at the time. And unfortunately I wasn't able to take them out there, but, um, that's kind of a long answer to your question. No, I, I, no, it's perfect. I, cause I'm the same way. I mean, I remember looking at pictures out there from Turkey country and same, same impact, uh, that you just mentioned, just the green as it's, as it's greening up, just the, the vivid green fields and, isn't some of that wine country too? The vineyards and stuff and around that. Yep, uh, yep, area. Yep, there's you know citrus is big, you know, and you get a little bit further wow. west and a little bit more north. You've got a ton of vineyards and wine country, and you know how 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 okay. So as much crap as we all give California, and rightfully so, I do know that California is. Like New York, see, I grew up in upstate New York, and I, and I, you hear, you heard what I just said. I didn't say I grew up in New York. I said I grew up in upstate New York because whenever you say you grew up in New York, everybody's mind goes New York City. You know, oh, do you, are there trees in New York? Yeah, there's, yeah, there's trees in New York. Shut up. So you, you've got to clarify. You know, when you say you're from California, I understand we give. California is a rash of crap. Well, they However, deserve every however. bit of that. But there, Chris, you would not believe it if you haven't spent much time there. There's actually unbelievable, unbelievable country. And the beauty of California is amazing. Uh, you know, unfortunately, a lot of that part of California, which I would say 80% of California is the prettiest place you've ever seen. And then you've got those big giant cities, but you know, central and Northern California is absolutely spectacular. And, you know, I think spring is their, is their shiniest um, season. You know, I think they, you know, it's just so green and so lush and so beautiful uh, in the spring. I encourage anyone listening, you know, get up around Sacramento and turkey hunt, get in that central, you know, Fresno area and turkey hunt, uh, Salinas, um, Napa Valley, you know, any of that stuff in there. It's just, it's, it's unreal country. They've got great blacktail. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's an, it's an awesome state uh, for turkeys for sure. Now, I, I just remember seeing your pictures and talking to you back in the day about it and just being, man, that would be fun. I mean, how? what kind of a day would that be? We're going to go turkey out in the morning, and then we're going to go hit a restaurant, eat some really good food, drink some really great wine, and then we're going to hit repeat. Yeah. <laughs> okay? and, Twist my arm. Yeah. Twist my arm. I can make that happen. Yes, yeah, we can. Yeah, you know, it's <laughs> it's uh, you know when this Gould's business really took off for me, it's really cut down on a lot of my other hunting. I used to hunt turkeys a lot. And 
now I, I'm in the field just as much, but you know, I'm not shooting them myself and, and that's okay. Um, I have a real passion, as you know, for Gould's turkeys and, and Mexico and, you know, it's, it's basically getting to hunt birds that are uneducated and not called and they, you know, judging from, you know, the time, the couple of years you've been down with us, Chris, um, you know, you get to see, you get a lot of bird encounters, you know, you shoot a lot of birds at night, you shoot, meaning most of the time, you know, you shoot them mid morning, morning, and, you know, it's kind of rougher at night. I, you know, it seems like our hunts in the evening in Mexico are just as good as our hunts in the morning. So it's, you know, I had, I had a day last year in Mexico where it was, you know, we killed, uh, basically three birds in the morning, three birds at night. I had three guys each shooting two birds and we killed all our birds in one day. I mean, that's, well, I would, I, mean, I wouldn't but, say common, but it's not uncommon to have, you know, multiple bird situations, multiple birds, you know, harvested in the same set. And, um, that's what's, you know, and the Goulds, they're especially beautiful with, um, you know, they're white on their feathers and all of that. So, I mean, I don't have to tell you, you've seen it firsthand. Well, I know. And the thing that I thought was always just, it was just funny to me is, um, you know, your hunts are three days, just like mine are, but you kind of, you have the day in the front and the day in the back. The funny part is, is you, you know, the, the, the hunters show up, we pick them up in the morning. We get to the ranch by early to mid afternoon. And you're like, oh, well, let's, let's go out. Let's see what we can find. How many of your clients kill one or both of their birds the night before their hunt actually starts, technically? A lot. Because the birds, because the birds <laughs> just want to work. That's what I, yeah. Gould, yeah, like I said, uneducated birds are a lot more fun than educated. Well, I won't say, I can't say that's a qualification. They're easier than educated birds. But you have Goulds just love to talk, and they just love to play. Yeah, and Rios I mean, are kind of, yeah, I'm I'm in it for the encounters, and you know, yeah. I, I I get, you know, I get a lot of emails, and oh, you just try and you couldn't kill an eastern, and I'm like, okay, well that that's fine. I I, I get that <laughs> that you have to work, but I would bet in a matter of a week, I see more interactions, hear more gobbling, see more birds strutting, see more birds die than they may see in four or five seasons correct and 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 that's always been something with elk that i've told people like you know i'm like i'm around i've you know guided in elk uh, for elk in arizona for 20 years i've hunted some of the best reservations in arizona for years i'm you know now at the odd six ranch in colorado like i'm around vocal elk and have so many encounters every day that experience, whereas maybe someone that's working their butt off in Idaho or somewhere where it's public ground and it's super hard and tough, I get it, but I value the, the interaction. I value the bugling. I value the gobbling. I value the strutting. I, I value high interaction, you know, whereas when I fish, I've kind of gotten to where my fly fishing you know, I have days where I just want to catch fish on dry flies. And then I have days where I just want to catch one big fish and I don't care if I catch a single fish as long as it's a big one. So, I mean, I get all of the sides of it with my turkey hunting. I'm in a position where I just like the encounter. I like to shoot the video. I like, you know, I, I, I like that interaction. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, and something you said resonated as well as 
Um, I used to go to Nebraska. I would start my season in Nebraska because they opened. Well, I mean, their season started already. Um, yeah, I'd start off in Nebraska, three birds, bam, 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 get back, go back to Colorado, start on that, go to Kansas, bam, bam. And, and you know, just I used to just hunt a pile for myself. I don't, I don't, now that, now that I'm running the hunts, I don't get the chance to, to do that. Um, but the beautiful thing is, is we get to, we get to play the game numerous times and get to see a whole bunch of turkeys get shot in the face a whole bunch of times. And it's, it's just as fun. Yeah. I mean, the passion's still there for both of us. You can tell the way we, we've been talking about it for three hours. Um, it's just a transition, you know, I've kind of just, and maybe one of these days I'll, I'll shift back where I'm hunting, you know, three or four or five states and, you know, shooting, you know, four, five, six, eight, ten birds a year. Um, and maybe not, I may never kill another one again. I mean, it's, it's, um, I'm super passionate about what I'm doing now and, um, it, it's exciting to have something to look forward to so much with, with the different things that, that I get to hunt, so I'm pumped about it. All right, next question for you, and this one I want to bake your, I want to bend your mind a little bit. I want to, I want to kind of ask you a little bit. So, talk to me about the podcast you did with Apex Ammo. Is there now? They're are they a sponsor, or did they just sponsor that podcast? So, um, Nick Charney, uh, who's one of the founders of Apex Ammunition for years, has been listening to the podcast. And we've kind of been in back and forth. And I've had several hunters over the years, whether it be Arizona auction tag holders that have bought the Goulds tags and Mexico hunters, different guys um, using the Apex Ammunition. And I've seen what it can do. And, um, you know, got a message from Nick and we basically been bouncing stuff back and forth. And the, the topic of, you know, Jay, we want to be involved in what you're doing came up. And so we kind of formed a relationship. And so Apex uh, Ammunition is sponsoring the podcast this spring. And I wanted to have Nick on the podcast. I encourage anyone out there listening that's listening to this, you'll love the Apex um, podcast and uh, they have sent me out some ammo um, and then all this COVID-19 with our, our ranges shutting down, a bunch of stuff. I haven't actually got to go out and shoot it through my shotguns yet. So the only experience yeah, okay. that I have is with, you know, my hunters and different people using it. Uh, one of my good friends, Phil Kramer, Kramer Hunts, he's been using it for the last several years. Dallas Strait, uh, the Straits out of Pennsylvania, they've been using it for years. Um, and, and the 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 thing about it, Chris, that's so intriguing to me and what I've seen from the birds that I've been around that have been shot are guys are able to use 410 and 20 gauge shotguns and having better penetration, having a more dense pattern than you even would with the, with a 12 gauge shotgun. Not that you can't use apex with a 12 gauge cause you can, and we are this spring. Uh, but what it's allowing is older gentlemen to carry lighter guns, uh, women and children to be shooting a more dense pattern and be able to actually have a better pattern with a 410 than a kid could with a 12 gauge, not to mention they can hold up a 410 much better. And there's even a craze of grown men using 410s and shooting, you know, super slams 
uh, Royal Slams, World Slams with, you know, 410, uh, you know, smaller bore shotguns. Uh, it's, it's, I'm excited about this partnership. I'm excited about what Apex is doing. Um, you know, the boxes of ammo that I did get of, of shotgun shells, you know, they're all initialed. Uh, they hand load everything. It's a three person founder, three founders. They're all have military ties. Um, two of which are in the military. One of which is married to a, I believe a Navy fighter pilot. Um, so the, the story is just awesome. It's a, it's an American made, you know, story. They've had unbelievable success, um, almost to the point where, you know, it's, it's production is a problem for them. They have so much demand that the, you know, they're, they're hand loading everything. They're not, uh, shipping stuff overseas to have anything done. They're doing everything themselves, but they run into what a lot of companies that, you know, start small run into, and that's growing pains of having so much demand and having a product that's so good that it's hard for them to keep, you know, keep it going. Uh, their factory now is, you know, running just full time. They have full staff that's just um, hand loading all of these uh, loads. And, you know, I'm excited to see the performance. I already know from, you know, Phil Kramer's been shooting it for years and Dallas Strait's been shooting it for years. Uh, what it can do. Scott Ellis, uh, he's came down and hunted Goulds. He's, you know, a notorious uh, stage caller and unbelievable turkey hunter lives in Florida. He's been... He's actually their pro staff manager. Uh, he's been using it for years, so it's it's an exciting deal. Yeah, no, I I, I mean, congratulations. I think it's a a I did. I looked at the company, and I I'm pretty darn impressed with what they're doing. And I do like the fact that it's American made. And I got a chance. Well, not a chance. I've had a chance sitting in my safe for how many years? I, a year. So I had a couple boxes of tungsten from a different manufacturer that I just never use. I just never played with them. And I just, for some reason decided, I'm like, you know what? I need to, I, I just want to play with, let me just run this through the shotgun this year, use it for turkey season and just see it. There's a, it, that is the thing that is hard for me to wrap my head around is the idea that I can use seven shot or nine, nine shot. shot. And I yeah. think, yeah, I, I think in, in Apex, they came up with that eight-and-a-half shot. You know, I can use nine shots and have just as much, if not more, penetration energy than I can with a size six shot. Five shot, actually. And it, it's actually more penetration. Um, and so you can actually have more shot pellets, if you will, in a pattern at 40 yards than you could with number fives because you've got way more pellets. Yeah, absolutely. And tungsten is super, super uh, heavy. So you've got small, but you've got super heavy. So you're carrying that um, energy downrange. It's, it's deadly. Yeah. Yeah. Now, no, no bones about it. Let's just be, let's just be perfectly honest right up front. 50 bucks for five rounds that ain't just couch cushion change you know what i mean so mm -hmm. they're not and it, it doesn't matter if you're talking apex i went through and i looked because people have asked me repeatedly and i have re i haven't done it yet because listen i any anytime i'm testing stuff 90 percent of the time it's, it's coming out of my pocket so when somebody asks me hey have you tried this shot have you tried that shot 
no, I'm not going to go drop $500 on 10 different boxes of, of tungsten ammo. It's, sorry. It, or, or whatever, you know. I, it's expensive. It's expensive. And so there's some people that look at it and you're like, there ain't no way in hell that I'm going to use that. However, there is the other side of that equation that if you're going to go on a, 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 a destination-type hunt, or I would argue, if you are that type of person that hunts Mississippi or Alabama or Pennsylvania or wherever you think your birds are the hardest birds to ever kill, and people are sitting there talking, how many times, Jay, do you have people show up in for a ghoul's turkey hunt and they go, I've got a 70-yard gun? Yeah, there's I mean, so many. Yeah. There's so many people that, that have in some of these places where turkey hunting is difficult, they have turned to high-performance shotguns that shoot 60, 70, 80 yards because they need to take a shot that far. That's just the reality of it. Otherwise, you wouldn't kill a bird except maybe once every five years. So if you're in that situation, this is where all of a sudden $10 or 12 bucks a round, well, okay, you just spent how much money on a hunt? You, you, okay, you waited 360 days since your last turkey hunt. You've waited 360 days for this next turkey moment. You, you, is $10 really going to make or break it? Yeah, and I mean, if most people waited, are only shooting one or two or maybe three turkeys a year. And yeah. most people are yeah. going to shoot one or two or three or four times a year. You might as well shoot a denser pattern. You get more pellets in that pattern. I mean, the make whole game count. is make it count. You know, you're not shooting 30 yeah. shots. It's not like a dove hunt where you're out there shooting, you know, hundreds yeah, of shots. You're only going to shoot. You may shoot five shots a season, period. Some guys only shoot yeah, once I, or I twice. Know, I know for a fact I've had turkey loads. I still I have boxes of turkey loads in my safe That right are now. 20 years old. Yes, because... <laughs> You know, if, if I'm only shooting two birds a year because of just where I live in my, you know, back when I was in college, I wasn't traveling. I had, I literally got to hunt Colorado. That's it. So I would either go, I would, if I got to hunt public ground in Colorado, over-the-counter units, it's one bird. And if you're lucky to draw a limited license, good for you because now you get to shoot a second bird. Well, goodness gracious, if you're in a state that only allows you to shoot two birds a year anyway, well, that box of, uh, now, obviously, obviously, you need to pattern your shotgun. I want to talk about that here in a second. I, I understand the caveat or the qualification you just gave me. However, I want to still talk to you a little bit about patterning the shotgun. So, obviously, you're going to have to have the initial investment to get get some ammo, and you're going to need to pattern your shotguns. You're going to take a, a few shots. You're probably going to use a box, at least a box of ammo the pattern your shotgun i understand that now that gets you're talking 50 bucks to 60 bucks to pattern a shotgun regardless of whether you're using apex or some other brand I, I do like what apex is about um so you've got that initial cost but then once you get it figured out if you're only shooting one to two birds a year well now the cost of that box can be spread out across the two or three years that you, you're going to have that box of ammo and the fact that now maybe that is the, the factor that allows you to perform better on the landscape. Maybe you can 
kill a bird a little bit more effectively and efficiently now. It just, for me, it's been, and I, I, I have to believe this is the same for a lot of other seasoned turkey hunters that are maybe in our age class because I, you just grow up fours, fives, sixes. That's what you use. Fours, fives, or sixes. That's a turkey load. One, one or a mix or whatever, fours, fives, and sixes. And seven, eight, nine shots, that's dove hunting, that's quail hunting. You don't use that for turkey. This is a completely different mindset shift away from what things used to be. And, and last year, like I said, last was it? Not last year. Year before? No, year before that. I finally pulled that box of tungsten out of my safe and shot it. Had a great pattern. Oh my word! I mean, that bird was the bird I killed was at forty yards, and it acted like he was standing at 15. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just, it just annihilated him. I was like, oh my word. And so I do, I, I sit and I listen to this now and, I, and I'm, I'm watching what these, these folks are doing. And I'm thinking, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to be the first to admit, I kind of poo-pooed this whole thing for years. Like why in the world did you spend that much? Yeah, you don't, nah, you don't need it. But the more time I spend around a variety of hunters. Yeah, I, I think I'm leaning kind of the direction you're thinking. And and for that very reason of what you said about the kids and about the ladies. Because if you're now, you and I have the luxury of hunting birds that are not as educated as other people. And you and I have the luxury of having our birds work our setups. 10, 20, a 30-yard shot out here, why? It's a, that's a stretch. You know what I mean? Most of the time, most of our hunters don't need to take a 30-yard shot. Right. Because I, I, most of the time, I'm putting them in 20 rough. And, and I'm talking just shotgun right now. Archery's even closer. Every now and then, if, you, if it gets late season and you need to stretch out to a 40-yard shot, okay. But when you sit down and you're taking a lot of, of ladies, a lot of first-time hunters, a lot of kids, man, I cannot tell you the number of times where a parent will ask me, well, my son, my daughter, doesn't like to shoot the 12-gauge or can't. Um, I used to cringe when they'd ask me for the 20. I'd be like, oh, man, are you sure you can't yes. shoot a 12? No, he really wants yes. to shoot a 20. I'm like, ah. Oh. Now I'm going to be like, okay. yeah, shoot the 20. Yeah, exactly. Okay, there you go. And when somebody said they're going to bring a 20-gauge, in my mind, what I just did, I, uh, of course I'm going to say absolutely. Come. You limited your I can work opportunity. It, it's going to limit your opportunity. So what that immediately did is that now I am pigeonholing you and your hunt into certain properties and certain bird populations where I know, okay, these areas I, I have a higher purpose. I have a higher probability of working a, a group of birds that I can put in front of this ground line at short range. Right. Versus other places where, oh my gosh, would it be an incredible experience for them to listen to 20 different gobblers on the limb and 110 on the limb just going nuts, but knowing full well those birds are probably going to pass at 35, 
40 yards. And the dad tells me they, they are comfortable 15 to 20. So it limits where I can put them, and it, it makes me consider my hunt and strategy for that, that particular group a little bit more carefully. Now, oh, my gosh, the, the ability to open up a different level of opportunity for folks just because the performance allows it. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm not going to entertain the, 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 the typical critics that say, oh, well, you're just using technology to make everything here. You just need to have woodsmanship and you need ah, shut up. You know? It, yeah. That argument. We're all you. Yeah. I want to use, we're, we're whether not. it's fishing or hunting, I want to use the best technology that I can possibly use. I want to be the most yep. efficient with my kill as I possibly can. If I can kill something quicker, faster, uh, easier, hard, you know, like more impact, that's what I want. I want to be able to kill something as Absolutely. fast and as ethically as I can. You know, Absolutely. the whole thing about it is it's allowed people to extend their range no different than it's allowed people that shoot a scoped rifle to extend their range. Then the whole argument of, well, how far should you shoot a scoped rifle? Well, you know, 50 years ago, they, they, you know, out past 100 yards with a rifle, you know, with iron sights was a big deal. Then scoped rifles came, you know what I'm saying? So it's like, let's not, uh, for me... I want to shoot the most efficient, effective killing thing that I can, weapon that I can. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, it, I, I mean, I'm excited about it. I, You know, when all this kind of started, COVID-19 wasn't even on the radar, and then all of a sudden I get the ammo, then all of a sudden, you know, the public ranges are closed, and, you know, they're, they're saying stay at home, and I'm like, well, dang, I want to get up there and, you know, shoot the shotgun and shoot this stuff. Um, so I'm, I'm anxious for this season you know, where I can finally get and do all this and see a bunch of turkeys and actually see it, you know, if that's all I'm taking to Mexico. So all my ammo will be apex ammunition. So after this season, if all goes well, even if half my season gets, you know, cut down from 75 to half of that birds, I'll be able to report back and probably have some photos of, you know, here's a bird at 18 yards, here's his head. Here's a bird at, you know, 27 yards, here's his head, and be able to show okay. people what this stuff can do. Okay, now, okay, you just, you just started going into the next question I had for you. Um, and I've got, I've got, actually, I've got three questions for you, but I'm going to take them one at a time. Two of them relate directly to this, the Apex ammo, and then the third one is going to be kind of somewhat related. Um, did, in your conversations... Okay, so different shotgun ammunition performs better or worse based on the choke that you use on your shotgun. There are some chokes that are considered wad-stripping chokes. There are some chokes that are not wad-stripping chokes. In your conversation with the guys, did they ever talk about what type of choke works best for this ammunition? If I remember right, he was talking about a 550 between a 550 and a and a 660 choke uh, choke is what he said, and I, he did mention wad stripping and non wad stripping, and I don't remember what he said about that. He was in that portion of the podcast; it was getting pretty technical, and it, it you know it kind of blew over me. Um, but I've bought a series, a couple of different chokes that I'm going to be trying, and I should, in another couple of weeks, have 
actually what is working best for me. So I'll be able to report back. Awesome. Awesome. Because I, I'm, very I'm worried about that. I'm worried about the biggest thing I'm worried about with this is it literally blowing their heads completely off and, you know, just absolutely destroying the head and, you know, having photos where the, it's just, I mean, the old term jelly, jelly head. That's what I'm yeah. worried about because I, and I told Nick, well, I said, you know, my shots are normally 20 to 25 yards and he just started laughing, you know, like, okay, oh, yeah, you're well, going to blow those heads it, completely off. And that, and that was going to segue into my next question. Now, before we do that, this, and the reason why I asked about the choke uh, constriction is because, again, what, I, what we, we were talking about just a minute ago as far as their cost, these are not cheap rounds. And you put a, wrong, a, a choke that's bad for these rounds on the end of your shotgun, and you're, you're screwing up your pattern because the choke is wrong. That becomes a costly mistake. Yeah, I don't think so you want to constrict it too much. I don't think you want to constrict I'm, it too much. And that's what I was thinking. I'm like, you could you theorize? And this is this is my ignorance speaking and just spitballing. But like we've seen, and this this is going to segue into that next question. Like we saw down in Mexico, people would come on a hunt and they have I've got this super ultra magnum premium super blanky blank and choke yeah and you and you and we look at each other and you're like um here let me unscrew that and put let's, this put, the yeah. let's put, yeah. the put the modified yeah let's put the modified because you're going to okay. shoot it at 20 yards so yes the answer to your question is i asked nick i said man we don't shoot out at 40 50 60 yards we just don't and he says well shoot it and let me know what you think but i mean yes okay. i i think we can shoot most of my, you've seen it. Most of the birds are shot at 20 to 25 yards. I think you'd be fine shooting just a regular modified choke. I think so too. I, I'm Obviously there's going to be people listening to this podcast that are just Cringy. flipping out right now, doing, doing cartwheels and yelling in their, their phone speakers because they already have played with this. And if you have, by all means, get on social media and let us know. Save us time. Dang it. You know what? Yeah. Seriously, because I, I think so, too. You could probably put a modified or just a straight full and do well. But my question to you is, and it, it went directly to that, is are you going to change your setups down in Mexico this season in response to the fact that at 15 to 20 yards, that pattern is going to be what? An inch and a half across? Yeah, it, it's all going to matter of how I shoot the shotguns beforehand and what I come up with as far as how far away I set my decoys. I don't really want it. I would rather change my choke than change how far I set up from the birds and the decoys because I like, from a video standpoint, I like how close we get to them. So Agreed. maybe if I have to set them 10 yards out further, that's one thing. Uh, but I would rather change the shotgun choke and I'm, I'm basically going to have to just shoot it and see what it does at 20 yards 30 yards and 40 yards and see you know count pellets in in the um pie plate if you will and see in the kill zone what i've got and i won't know until i shoot it yeah is my the only thing that when i was listening to the you guys talk. The only thing that, that struck me now, 
when people are going down and hunting ghouls with you, by and large, now there are there absolutely are exceptions, there absolutely are, but by and large, a lot of your hunters are experienced hunters. They've killed a bunch of birds and they're working on their world slam or whatever. And so this is a they've been there, done that. They've killed some birds. Now there there's a whole gamut of technical ability and and shooting ability through that whole thing. But most of, by and large, I think a lot of your guys are, are guys and gals are are success have been successful somewhere else in the past. My my question was those and and I was down there with you. Some like well, the guy that that shot the decoy with a bow. There's some folks that just get. I get my heart's pounding. I get riled up, and and some people get that, you know, gobbler fever or whatever. And man, if that pattern is that tight in those close ranges, what birds are going to get missed? And then the other thing I thought, and this is not this, and this is just a general thought. The other thing that popped in my head was, how much more careful do we need to? Do we need to be now? Now we always need to be careful on what is downrange back behind our target. But goodness gracious, in a situation like you, where you've got so many birds, I mean, there's been plenty of times where we've set up on those ghouls and you've got like 20 birds yeah. around. Yeah, you're going to have to definitely have make to- sure downrange behind where you're shooting is clearer yeah. than before because you're going to be carrying yeah, it out and carrying penetration out further for sure. Yeah, that's going to be another caveat to that whole thing. It's like, wow, okay. that. I mean, obviously, you need to be careful in general, but now you've got more lethality at extreme ranges, you know? So it's like, man, with everything comes a trade-off. And so you start going, you start getting excited and giddy about, oh, this is going to be this and this you got to kind of take a step back and say, okay, and then what? You know, what are what are the unintended consequences? What are the, the periphery things that don't necessarily hit our brain at that emotional moment where we go, wait a minute. And so I am, I'm, I'm very, I, I'm, please let, well, obviously I think you're going to let everybody know, but by darn well, you please let me know. Cause I'm very curious to see how you, what your shotguns do with the chokes that you have and what those patterns look like at close range. Because I just wonder, I kind of thought my back of my head, I, I thought exactly what you kind of said. I, I said, I wonder if Jay's going to push that decoy spread out 10 yards just to have that little bit of a, little bit of a, a larger pattern, a little bit of a buffer. But yeah, the last open, thing I want right? is guys shooting a golf ball pattern at, you know, 18 yards. Yeah. And, and then the people that want a full body mount. Now, granted, I know you can get freeze-dried heads and you can get fake heads and all that type of stuff for your turkey, but a lot of these guys want full body mount. Oh, I just pray they don't pull like what we saw. That one year where the guys just accidentally either pull a little low or they just body shoot the thing because, oh, you're, oh. Can you, imagine, can you imagine the body shots on this? Oh my gosh! You'll just blow. I mean, it will blow them to pieces. Well, and see, and it's kind of funny. I'm laughing because my brain circles back to what I asked, or what we were talking about just a minute ago about these. 
insofar as I have been in a situation with youth. I have been in the situation with new like ladies that were, were going to come out and have their first hunt. They get excited that maybe they accidentally pulled a little low and they shot a little low. Now, for me, with Rios, most of the people that come out and hunt with me, they are not working on their slam. They're not looking for a full body mount. They just want to come out and shoot a turkey. And I've had times where, you know, they pull and they kind of hit them in the body and I've seen a couple, not a lot, but a couple times where they hit him in the body and, you know, with a 20 gauge or whatever, it rolls the bird and the bird gets up, takes off and runs it. So for me, I like the idea. Again, it's just like what I say about mechanical broadheads. I want you to throw a gigantic mechanical broadhead through a turkey. Why? Because if you make a bad shot, the impact of that head is going to be significant in, in knocking that bird down breaking that bird down and causing massive trauma to where you have a high percentage play of recovering that bird. Well, with these new shell, with a, with a tungsten and, and with what, you know, with the apex, guy, and I, I know there's other people out there. I just really did like the veteran. I, I like everything about how the company was, was structured at the moment. So I love the fact that you're working with them. Um, I like the fact that, you know what? Now if a kid does kind of shank a shot, or if a, if a new hunter kind of accidentally gets excited and shanks the shot, wow, it, it gives us an opportunity now to have a little bit more penetration through muscle and, and heavy feather. Bone. Yeah, smashing through yeah. feather and bone it, and actually killing. It, break, it breaks them down. You know what I mean? Even if they shank the shot and it doesn't kill the bird, but it broke his back and it's flopping, I can dive. I'll do my Superman dive out the front of the blind, and I'll go, I'll go pounce on the thing. But at least now it's not running. You know what I mean? Yeah, for so, sure. No, I'm I'm very interested. And then the other question came up, and I think you touched on this beginning. Someone asked about, and I've had this, what shotgun? If you're going to buy a shotgun for turkey hunting, or someone calls you, Jay Scott, said, I'm, I want to come down, what shotgun? I, obviously, you have shotguns there for folks. But if, if someone said, what shotgun should I buy, what are you recommending? Let me answer that in just a second. Chris, we have a uh, question from an uh, Instagram follower, and uh, he wants us to call him. He's got a couple questions. He's talking about some Colorado uh, birds in Unit 44. Let's give him a call here real quick. Sean, I've got Chris Rowe on the line. It sounds like you've got uh, some Colorado turkeys you've got some questions about. Go ahead and give us the, give us the lowdown. I do. Thanks for taking my call, Jay. Uh, appreciate your help, um, you know, online and everything. Chris, how you doing? Doing all right. How are you? Good, thanks. Um, so I finally drew a 44 turkey license in Colorado. Uh, takes about three to four years to get, so I'm pretty excited. Um, How's it going? I've been hunting turkeys for two years, so I'm not um, by any means a professional. Um Basically, I've been scouting for the last week, and I found two zones where I found birds in. Uh, what's the likelihood that they will be in those zones in two weeks? When does your season start? Two weeks. Okay, so around the, the fifth. Okay, the eleventh of April. Yep. I I would say. Much, go ahead, Chris. Oh no, sorry, I didn't mean to step on you. I, I was just going to say, how much snow did you see up there right now? So they're basically kind of at snow line. Um, and it's, it's pretty spotty. I mean, they're not like, 
that solid snow that's still just kind of drifted up up there. But um, they're definitely as high as they probably want to be. So I would tell you that I think those birds are probably going to be right there. I would keep an eye on the weather, obviously, over the next two weeks. If all of a sudden it gets really, really warm and that snow line, you know, starts sliding up. We had, Chris and I, we've been talking here for a couple hours uh, on podcast. And one of the questions that did come up was snow line. Um, but I would say that I would kind of keep track of those birds, but keep an also track on that snow line. And if it starts obviously sliding up, you know, know that they're, they're probably going to be there or maybe even a touch higher. If you feel like, you know, they're at as high, you know, pretty high elevation already, I would, I would bet that you've got those birds there. One of the things I would encourage you to do is keep track of those birds, but potentially if you have the ability to, to keep scouting is reach out and just keep looking for other pockets of birds with it being a public public land hunt, you know how those can go at some time. You could pull up to your two best spots and there's guys already camped or parked there. You're going to have to have other birds that you can go after. Chris, what are your thoughts? Yeah. So have you, have you, or do you know right now, where those birds typically spend their winter um yeah honestly i don't think they're far from it um where where i found them there is a ton of sign you know scratches where they dig to feed and and um roosting areas and i mean it's it's pretty beat beat up with sign um and really they're pretty much above either a golf course or um a development there's not much further yeah. they can go. Gotcha. Okay. Then the reason why I asked that is because have you have you turkey hunted in Colorado before? Yeah, last year I killed a bird. Okay. Because I was just going to say, it almost seems like clockwork every year that you are going to hunt on opening weekend. You're going to hunt in snow. Either you're in a snowstorm, or three to five days prior to season, you get a just massive snow comes in and dumps on everything. So the reason why I ask that is because if there was a major difference in where they winter to where they are now, if just keep an eye on the weather, because if all of a sudden here in the next couple of days or the beginning of April, all of a sudden there's a massive snowstorm, they could fall back to where they just came from. If, if they are at that good screen green up right now, and there really is no more elevational gain, for them to follow, say it stays warm, say it starts to melt off, and say that green up just starts marching itself up the mountain, up in elevation, as long as where they are now is kind of where they're going to be as that green up progresses, I have, I, I like what Jay said, I, I think they're going to be right in that same neck of the woods. Gotcha. That is helpful. Any other <laughs> questions you've got, Sean, as far as turkey hunting? Um, yeah, it could be specific to this area, but, um, what are the best weeks to hunt as far as responsiveness, um, from, you know, mature toms to calling Chris, I'll let you tackle it first. Me for Colorado. I absolutely loved, and I performed best that last part of April. I always would go out opening. I would always go out opening weekend, absolutely. And I've killed birds opening weekend. However, there have been numerous times hunting from the north 
part of the state all the way to the southern part of the state, and then over in the southwest part of the state, there, there are, is a high level of likelihood that when the season opens, those birds might be locked down on hens. And so he'll gobble at you, but you need to be in the direction that those hens want to go, or you need to be able to call the entire flock to you. But later on, at the end of April, is when, generally speaking, I started to see those hens going off and laying eggs, and where the midday hunts at towards the end of April are absolutely money as far as getting those birds to come just cruising on their own or doubles and just covering lots of ground to make their way to your calling. Understood. Sounds good. Uh, you kind of answered my other question. Um, last year, I noticed a lot that it's, I don't, it kind of, I don't really like when people compare it to elk hunting, <laughs> but it, there are some similarities as far as like public land, mountain turkey hunting. Um, There's a hell of a lot of, of similarities. What do you mean you don't like that? Well, yeah, I mean, just the challenge aspect of it, but yeah, it's very similar. Um, yeah. so I was going to ask about being hend up. Sounds like that's definitely a thing. And, uh, you know, as far as like roaming toms and uh, that sort of thing. It, it depends on the number of birds that are in the area. Now, I this is many, probably 10 years ago now, I hunted 444. So I kind of know that I know generally where you are. Uh, yeah. It all depends on what that turkey population looks like these days. If it's, if it's still a small kind of remnant little pockets of birds, it, it, it can be tough. But if that population has expanded and you've got a lot of two-year-old birds running in the landscape, you very well may get out there opening day and just have it at the hunt and have a two-year-old run you over. But sure. just understand, if it's a small group of birds and they're a tight-knit group of birds and they've been with each other all year long, they might be a little cautious of other hens, or other turkey sounds. And just do, again, Jay said it, we've been talking for hours now, but we hit hard uh, earlier about scouting and just watching the pattern of those, the movement pattern of those birds. Where are they going? And can you get in front of where they already want to be? And Copy the other that. thing, other thing, Sean, is um, fight the urge to call to them with the calls that you're going to be using during the hunt. I mean, it's one thing to kind of be trying to figure out where they're roosting and shocking them, you know, with a coyote howler uh, or something like that to, you know, get them to shock. But if you've got birds that you're watching, you've kind of got dialed in, fight the urge to mess with them. Just watch them with your binos, listen with your ears, and, you know, that will create a situation where you have birds. Once you start calling to them, it's fresh and not, you know, you haven't worn it out two weeks prior, um, you know, calling to the birds. How long does the season last there? Oh, it's it's fairly long. I want to say it's 45 five days okay so you go well and you go into may then well into may yeah yeah into may yeah and and chris i've even been there when i get back from my goulds and get up there by may 15th you know um sean i live in the carbondale basalt area in the roaring fork valley starting about may 15th till september 1st so i'm there all summer and a bunch gotcha. of my buddies up there um over in you know that part of of the valley they they say that that May hunting can be fantastic. Um, I don't know what your experience has been there in, in that unit, but, you know, keep in mind, 
you know, a lot of my friends there that hunt not 44, but other units, they say, you know, May 1st can be just absolutely great. No, you're absolutely right. My question too, Sean, is how many, like, have you, how many gobblers, like, what are we talking is, is, you know, you got a bunch of gobblers found? Um, yeah. So the first group I found, uh, I think was six mature toms. Good. A few jakes and probably a dozen hens that I saw. And I tried to keep my distance because I did not obviously want to bust them out of there. Yep. Um, and then the group I found today was much smaller, probably three toms and maybe 10 hens. Okay. Again, though, I mean, if you have the ability to, you know, scout and just keep finding different pockets of birds and, and, you know, trying to establish where you might have different pockets where people won't be, um, try and figure out where people are going to, if you're going to have company, where they're going to come in from and maybe where you can approach the birds. Or if you have a feeling of which direction those birds are going to move because of pressure, you might anticipate that. And, you know, whether it be get above them or around them, uh, you know, you might think of all that. I'm sure you already have. But don't take, if you've got birds pinned down and they're gobbling in the same place every day, keep in mind anyone else scouting is going to probably be able to pinpoint those same birds. So, you know, try and, if you know, if you've public land elk hunted in Colorado, you probably already think like a ninja, but, you know, you've got to. Yeah, kind of, living in Eagle yeah. County, unfortunately, we're used to hunters over yeah. here. <laughs> so, you That's know. That's okay, though. Seek those birds that, you know, might be out on the fringes uh, and, you know, maybe don't go after the most popular birds because you probably have company. Yeah, no, it's a fair uh, assumption. Absolutely. Um, that kind of leads me into uh, one, hopefully a quick one for you guys. Um, they gave out 50 licenses this year in this little zone. This kind of, I feel like is a lot. So just any tips on staying safe out there um, would be helpful. I don't know if you've had any situations that lend itself to that kind of advice, but yeah, I hopefully mean, not. <laughs> for, for, for me, I, I would just say, you know, if, if, if you're set up and it's before light or the night before and you've got birds roosted and all of a sudden a you know, truck rolls by and it's very obvious they're, they're going to go after the same birds, I would try and have a conversation and just say, hey, what's your plan? I, I mean, are you going in there? Yes, I'm going in there. Okay knowing ahead of time what you're dealing with is important. And I always tell people on public land in Arizona, if you at any given time hear anyone else calling to the same turkeys you're working, you need to either get out of there or if it gets close enough where they're calling and the bird's gobbling and you're both calling to the same bird, I've I've recommended people blow the entire deal over someone getting so close that potentially they're calling the birds gobbling you're calling the birds gobbling and you get a chance to get caught in a crossfire it's better having a hunter upset with you that you blew his whole situation because you didn't want to get in a position where you're going to get any sort of crossfire it's just not worth it um yeah understood don't even mess with it yeah don't even mess with it blow the whole thing and just go look man i'm sorry but i didn't want to have a situation where you know you didn't know i was here and 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 you know we nobody wants that and you know that goes back to you know if you get a bird you know maybe have an orange ribbon you know there's a lot of things you can do to walk out of the woods safely chris do you have anything to add well, I was just going to say, when he listens to this podcast, 
Um, you know, we talked about just if you know you're going to be in an area with a lot of other hunters, just use caution if you want to decide to use a full strut decoy or even one of the newer, you know, DSD or Avian X, the real lifelike looking Jake decoys. If you're going to use a Jake or a strutter or something like that, just be careful with it and make sure your setup is such that you have a good something behind you and then you have good visibility around you if someone's going to be creeping through the woods. Most of the time now, you know, turkey hunting has been around long enough to where I think a lot of people are much safer than they used to be. However, you just don't know and you still have idiots out there that just want to go stalk turkeys and just shoot at birds that they can see. So just be careful if you're going to use that, and I would absolutely not. Even though I love the guys at Heads Up Decoy, I love being able to do the you know the, the turkey fan and the reaper style hunt. Do yeah. not do that. Do not right. do that out there. Right. It's not in the mountains because inviting trouble. Poke, yeah, you always take somebody to hop over a ridge and just <clears throat> let loose. So just be careful on that. And, and like Jay said. If you've got, mo- and we talked about, again, we talked about this earlier, and I've got the, the YouTube video that shows it, but if you're in a situation where you have multiple birds gobbling, now, Jay, I'm just, I'm about to laugh at myself because now we're doing this on podcast, so now everybody's going to do this exact same thing, so we probably just shot ourselves in the foot, but <laughs> normally, if, if, if I've got multiple birds gobbling, and you, bird number one, say I've got three birds, bird number one is next to the trailhead, bird number two is a half a quarter mile up the trailhead and bird number three is a mile from the trailhead i'm going to bird number three right because most people as they're walking up they hear a bird they're going to go after now now because we're talking about that everybody's going to go to bird yeah, so pick three, bird so two bird now psychology. so now yeah, now yeah. go to bird one yeah, yeah back <laughs> to bird <laughs> one exactly it. Exactly it. Or, i got you and i and you joke I and mean, we joke about this and i'm gonna laugh about this but don't discount Letting everybody go chase the morning set. You know, everybody's going to go try to get on those birds and on the roost and try to call them off the roost, and they're, they're going to be all gung-ho. There's, I've done this in the past. It's, it's not a bad play to sometimes just simply get yourself on the landscape and actually don't set, if, you, if it's just a bunch of people in the, the tra- at the trailhead in the parking lot, I have literally walked up the trail and literally stood on a ridge just in a location where I can hear, and I don't even set up on a bird at daylight. I let everybody else set up. Everybody else start pushing and bumping birds, and then I just let all the initial fray settle down, and then from 10, 11, 12, 1, 2, that's when I go in. Once I hear where, what direction those birds are going to go, then I go away from the roost site, away from where everybody else was gathering, and then I just go out and I'll set out. And a lot of times you can you can beat the crowd that way as well. Remember, you can shoot, you can hunt all day. So yeah, just that midday hunt. Yes, good point. Especially, especially especially if some of the people that drew those fifty tags are locals, because a lot of people are going to go you know hunt in the morning, and then they've got other stuff that they've got to do the rest of the day so they go hunt and then they leave or they yeah. hunt and then they leave well midday hours afternoon hours can sometimes be really good gotcha sean thanks for the question good luck okay guys thank you very much right. yeah share pictures okay we will do
All right, Chris, um, you had asked me about the shotgun. Yeah, what if you had to recommend someone to, if they if they said, "Hey, I want to get into turkey hunting. What shotgun? What type of type? I don't care about brand, but what type of shotgun should I get? Twenty gauge, twelve gauge, four ten, uh, pump, semi auto, long barrel, short. But what if if Jay Scott was going to just go out and buy the gun for that person? What would you get? Well, up until this apex whole discussion i would always tell someone a 12 gauge shotgun usually you know a 26 inch barrel or more um and i like semi-automatics because i feel like you can get three shots off quicker than you can with a pump um i i do love pumps but i think a semi-auto um is probably best i actually just bought a stoger m3000 um, which is a kind of a cheaper version of a Benelli uh, automatic. And I've heard lots of really good things about that. Um, you know, you say you don't want brand. You know, one of my favorite guns is that Super Black Eagle, you know, the, the, the Benelli Black Eagle yeah. series. Um, you know, I've, I've used DARS Super Black Eagle for years. Um, a bunch of birds have been shot with it. And I just love the fact that if for whatever reason they miss that first shot, I mean, they can literally just bam, bam. You've seen the old commercials where, um, three shots are gone before the first shell even hits the ground. Um, and I know that sounds crazy, but, uh, having the ability to shoot one, two, if you had to, uh, is, is to me better than a pump where, you know, you actually have to pump the shotgun to shoot the second shot. Um, so I would probably go with a semi auto. The, you know, what's crazy is the new trend is to go with the real short barreled shotguns. And I'm really not the guy to ask. I'm, you know, Dar's really the gun tinkerer and he loves tinkering with all sorts of guns. I'm more of a just, you know, get me one good 12-gauge shotgun and I'm good to go. I don't even really need to mess with it. Um, but have you seen the whole, this whole thing with these real short-barreled shotguns? It's a, it's a real trend right now. You mean, you mean like the shotgun I use? Is that what you're using? Is this a real <laughs> short-barreled shotgun? I, I actually bought that thing back in, uh, good gracious, it has to be now 89 I don't. It's a Remington. It's yeah. It's a short barrel. I love my short barrel. I it, as long as it, it, as long as the shotgun's going to pattern with a short barrel, I prefer the short barrel. But keep going because this this question is actually working out way better than I even expected. So keep going. Keep going. Keep going on my shotgun. Yeah, we, your opinion. Just. I mean, my opinion always your, was when someone would say they wanted to use a 20 gauge for turkeys, I just cringed because it, it limited my range. And I knew that my killing power was going to be way limited. Not that I was taking long shots anyway, but now with the, with this apex, I think it's going to, it's, it's a game changer. Obviously I haven't messed with it, um, as much as a lot of other people, but I mean, they're shooting four tens and showing patterns of four tens at forty yards better than my pattern at twelve with a twelve gauge with five shot. Their their yeah. their their uh, numbers of pellets in the kill zone are three or four times more of my five shot. Crazy. With with the energy to kill. Them. With the That's energy the to kill them at that distance with a four ten. It's crazy. So much smaller shot, but heavier shot, if that makes sense. It's, so it's small. It's 
nine shot, you compare a uh, you compare um, nine shot lead or nine shot copper with nine shot tungsten. The weight, I don't know what the difference is, but it's it's astronomical the difference in weight. So you're carrying a much heavier, more dense pattern out there at a, at a further distance. What it's created though, Chris, and it's kind of going off the subject of your shotguns, but it's created the ability for guys to shoot 60 and 70 yards way more lethal than they could before at 30 or 40. But what it's caused is this whole grief of guys saying, oh, all these guys just want to shoot at 60 or 70. Not for me. That's not why it's intriguing to me. Why it's intriguing to me is if that I miss at 40, and the bird's out there at 60 and he's periscoping that I know I can outperform at 60 than a lot of guys were shooting at 35. Yeah. I, I, have, have you have you articulated your position? I think so. Did you feel? Okay, excellent. Because <clears throat> folks that are listening to this right now need to understand something very, very important. We just stumbled upon probably the most monumental I, I don't even know how to articulate this we have actually stumbled upon a topic that Jay and I disagree on this is this is awesome because I am 100% opposite of you on on my recommendation for a shotgun Let's I didn't it. think that I didn't think that. So this is awesome because you think about how many things that we, I mean, that was, that's what I love when, when we get together and you have me on your podcast, but it, it ends up, and I get this feedback a lot that, you know, you and I think very much alike calling out, you know, how we think about things. And so this is actually funny. Are you I a single not, shot guy? Single shot. No, you no, want to no. reload? Oh, you're a pump guy. You no. want to make the first shot count. Okay, let's, here's, here's my, I, I actually. Chris, have you seen me shoot? Hate, I, okay. I'd have a speed loader if I could. I, I've, seen you, I've seen you shoot, but I've also seen a lot of other people shoot. And the funny part is, is the reason why I, I, I cannot stand auto, semi-automatic. I just load them. When I have a hunter show up at my place and they pull out a semi-auto, my first, and it doesn't even matter, even down hunting with you, they pull out a semi-automatic, and I'm like, ah, crap. <laughs> because most of the time, in my experience, Yeah, we get accustomed to firing multiple rounds because we know we can. <laughs> well, no. That, okay, okay, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll touch on that one here in a minute because that, that can be good. But I also think it can be bad. But let's touch on that. Or don't let me don't let me get off on a tangent and not circle back to that because I, that's important. But no, my issue. Okay, I, I, let me. I guess I, I let me just say this: If you are going to buy Jay Scott's shotgun and you're going to get a semi-automatic, please, please do me a favor. Please learn how to load that gun efficiently and quietly i can't tell you how many times someone shows up on a hunt and they're like all right let's should we load now and typically you know with a pump 
I can, we can actually go all the way to the ground line or get, go all the way almost to the tree we're going to sit on and literally just gingerly drop a shell in the chamber and slowly close that slide and go and yeah. be done. I will agree Where with you. Is, a pump is way quieter and oh way gosh. easier to slide in something and then load the gun. Oh, I mean, my gosh. You, on I, these I Benelli's, too, you have to run the slide, and you I mean, it has to... I mean, you have to jack it. Yeah. I mean, it has to really engage and close or else it is not going to fire. Bingo, bingo. And that's the thing is, you know, some people think that, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to slowly, I'm going to, I'm going to load the chamber and then I'm going to, I'm going to ride the slide down. Nope. She's not going to engage. And that bird's going to come in and you're going to put the, the safety off and the, the trigger's just going to be dead or it's just going to go click. Nothing. So you have to let that slide go. I can't tell you the number of people that show up with a semi-automatic, and all I hear in the pitch black while we're trying to be quiet, and the birds are on the roost. All your clicky clack, 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 clack. Oh crap! I I didn't put the the round in the chamber for. Oh wait, I can't put. Oh, I got the gun jammed. And now I've got to get the. And, oh my word! I'm with oh, you. My word. Hey, I just hang on just a second. We have another guy to call here, but give me just a second, okay? All right. All right. Chris, I've got Justin uh, on the line. He's got some questions about Eastern Colorado. Justin, how you doing? I'm doing well. Hanging in there. Let's hear your turkey questions. Yeah, so predominantly hunting Eastern Colorado, uh, probably uh, Parker, kind of just east of Denver. Um, been getting the birds on camera, and they're kind of all balled up. Um, looking, you know, for some decoy strategies, possibly for early season, that first two weeks. Uh, hunting out of a ground blind uh, with a bow. Archery. <laughs> We've been talking about that. We've been on podcast here for about almost four hours. And um, so you've got ground, uh, public ground, private ground. What are we looking at? Uh, private ground. I was okay. Able to obtain some... So private ground. So you have the ability to run a full strut or a Jake decoy and not worry about um, potentially someone, you know, shooting in your direction right correct chris i'll let you run with this and then i'll chime in yeah no and, and by the way jay don't think you're gonna don't think you're gonna skate out on me on the finishing up this shotgun discussion because <laughs> we're, we're in a gold we're in a golden moment here where i actually get to substantively debate you on something okay <laughs> i i won't forget um, no, no so yeah We've been talking about this, and, and for your situation early season, I absolutely would run the setup that we were talking about, a, a, what I call that whipping boy setup. I would – well, uh, before I get – okay, let me take a step back. Do you have decoys now? Yes. What decoys do you have? Um, I've got a couple of hens from Avian. Uh, i got a lay-down hen, some feeding hens. Uh, I also have uh, the one of the new Flextone Jakes. Oh, okay. All right, all right. Gotcha, gotcha. Do you have a full strut decoy right now? Uh, the only one I have is the, um, I believe it's the Primos one uh, that has the, the folding fan that you can actually, nice. uh, that has the shotgun nice. uh, groove for it. Excellent. Okay, excellent. Okay, so um, I would run them all. I, I would, I, early season, I would run them all. I'd have the strutter out there if, and then I'd have the Jake off, you know, I'd set the strutter where you want to take the shot at whatever Mac. Are you going to bow or shotgun? Uh, bow. 
Oh, oh, that's right. You said ground blind. Sorry. Yep, yep, yep. So, if you seriously, unless these birds are educated and spooky, I would literally set that strutter at like ten yards where you want to take the shot. Put the Jake decoy at like fifteen to seventeen yards off to you know behind the strutter and off to the side, and then I'd scatter your hens around and do some sweet call and make sure you're in in front of where the birds naturally want to go, and then just take your time and make a great shot. Justin, awesome. I would I would ask you the question of so you've got some birds scouted out and do you know where they're roosting? Uh yeah, they're about. Um... So the prop, uh, the property that I'm hunting actually has about a hundred acres of undeveloped land, uh, about about 150 yards um, up the ridge, and they're roosting up in there, and they're kind of running a fence line every day um, to feed. I've been getting like 20, 30 birds every day on camera, but they're all kind of hanging together. Nothing's really separated yet. Okay, well, it sounds like if you've got them kind of pinpointed with a trail camera, and you can kind of between now and when the season starts, you can kind of get a sense of timing of what time of day are they crossing and what time of day are are you getting pictures of them. If you can pinpoint and get a level of consistency where at 9 o'clock, you know, almost every day they're, they're walking through this area, what I would do is that's where you want to set up your spread and maybe don't mess with them on the roost. Let them go ahead and have a little bit of sanctuary up there so they stay on the property. Um, I yep. think I think encountering them in a feeding situation is much better than up on a roost because if you happen to bump them, you know they could potentially go to somewhere else. So let them ha- let that be their sanctuary and leave that be. Don't even go up there is what I would recommend. And then Absolutely. I would set your spread. Now is your trail camera shooting down the line of the fence line? In other words, is the fence in the camera? Are they walking between the fence and the camera, or is it a down the line look that you've got? I have a, almost a perpendicular and down the line. I actually have the camera on the fence post. And, and which side of the fence are they on? Uh, on on the side um, that I, where I have permission behind uh, where the camera is. So okay. they're coming in front of the camera. And the camera's pointed away from the fence. Okay, so in other words, you have a consistent pattern of which side of the fence that they like to travel, right? Yes. Okay, so you obviously want to set up your spread on the side of the fence that they're traveling on and, of course, the one you have permission to hunt on, right? Correct. And do you have a common direction that on camera you get them in the mornings, they're facing this way and lined out going left or right. And in the evenings, they're going back the other way. Or do you ha- not have that much of a it, pattern? I would say it's been sporadic. I'm consistently getting pictures. Um, I've got, um, I'm going to have to pull the camera probably uh, four days before just because the new laws. But it's one of those cell phone cameras. Okay. Um, but they're, I mean, it's sporadic. They're like, I mean, midday, I'm getting pictures, morning, and, and then... Um, the last two days, I guess we got snow yesterday. I didn't get any pictures. When, when is the most consistent time that you're getting the photos? Uh, mid morning. Okay. So At I would nine thirty to, I would make sure if it were me and you really wanted to kill one and, you know, get one for sure. I would find the most consistent time. I would try and get in there before I wouldn't even try and call or mess with anything as far as trying to shock them or anything. Get in there, get all set up. Um, Chris, let's talk about his decoy positioning with a fence line situation. 
uh, how would you run that? Well, yeah. So I'm, I'm liking everything you're saying. Because uh, I agree with you. If, if there's, if you've got sporadic activity around there, that means that they're around there and they're milling around there, back forth, back forth. It's not like they show up at, at eight o'clock. You know, thirty minutes after uh, after sunrise, they show up and then they're gone. And that's the only time you see. Because then, if that was the case, you're just going to pass through and they're going somewhere else. But if you have just, you know, mid morning and just kind of pictures here, pictures there, picture. That means those birds are around that area and they're comfortable. So I agree with Jay. Stay right. I would not even crowd that roost. I would go over to where, you know, maybe a few hundred yards from the roost or where you think they're going to be hanging out for the day. And, yeah, I with that fence line, if, if they're walking along that fence line, how much is it, is it a narrow corridor? You know, the fence is here, and then is there a, a river or is there... In other, in other words, is it wide open where the fence is, or do you have it's, some cover, right, Chris, or a pinch? Or is it a pinch point? Pinch point. Yeah, is it a pinch point or open? Uh, from if you're if you're standing with your back to that fence line, I have an open pasture. Um, there is some disturbance. You know, there is like a gulch about 200 yards um, down. Uh, if you're going to the west of the property, I mean, you're going up a hill. But I have a good, gosh, I don't know. Um, 40 yards by 40 yard just kind of pasture that it's wide open with tall grass but do you have cover for your blind i actually yes i i put my blind up yesterday um or two days ago just to kind of get it acclimated there is some scrub oak uh kind of in the middle there that's just randomly positioned that i put my uh blind so that the scrub oak is behind it and then um, out to my left window of the blind, I've got the probably about thirty yards from me is where that fence line is. Perfect, perfect. Okay, that, that's money. Because all I was going to say is, if if you're if the fence line, the reason why if they were following that fence line because there's a pinch point there, what I was going to say is I would not put my decoys smack dab up against that fence and in their direct line of travel. I would prefer to have my decoys off that fence a little bit so that they have free access to move down that fence line yes. and can engage my decoys if they want. Exactly. Because that way you don't cause an alarm situation where they have no choice but to engage your decoys. I want to give them the opportunity to enter in, engage my decoys if they want. But if they don't, and say this is a small population, that it's a tight-knit group, and they're a little leery, they can keep walking right on by, and you can judge their behavior and, and adjust what you need to do from there if they decide to skirt you. But it sounds like you've got a perfect situation right there anyway, and it, I'm glad to hear that you put your blind up already. Let the birds get used to it. A lot of times you can throw a blind up and, and hunt turkeys regardless, but if you have the ability to put a blind up and let them get used to it, go for it. That's what I do out here. So that's awesome. I like the idea that you're 30 so yards off that fence line. I would have my decoys off that fence line. Um, that That's perfect, perfect scenario. The only other question I would say with your, other than what Jay just, I mean, Jay nailed it, where, so your ground blind, how are the openings of your blind, what type of blind do you have, and how are the openings of your blind situated? Um, I've got that 360 surround view Primos blind. Um, I like it. I ended up putting the back wall on it because I thought it was getting too much light transmission through it. 
Um, so I set it up. Um, I actually, uh, you know, it has the little, um, you can either have like the sides that you raise up and down, if that makes sense. Um, and then the other sides have the little shooting cutouts. I almost have it angled because I prefer to have, um, one of the little, uh, cutouts to have uh, my broad head sticking out. Okay, perfect. You've got, so, and, and which, well, I guess it doesn't matter with it, with the surround view, I guess it doesn't matter as much. I was going to say, I, you know, for those type of blinds, if you have the window, the, the slide, the horizontal window open, the other consideration I was going to say is if you were setting it up and the sun was shining in the morning, the sun was shining into it. You got to be careful make sure you have it so that the sun is not shining directly into the blind with the surround view that you don't have a choice. The sun's going to it's coming in. So I'm glad to hear you have the back wall up there, but just understand, you, you know, it is what it is. So understand also if, if the birds dance around your decoys, is that shoot through window, that little cutout, is that going to be big enough for you to, to swing left or right? of your decoys in order to get a shot or would it be better to slide that horizontal window open a little bit? Yeah, that's probably a good consideration. Um, depending on the decoy setup, I may be a little limited. It just gives you options. I know, and Jay, correct me if I'm wrong. I know you're, you have the Zenix line and I, I, how we set it up. I, I love the horizontal window design on any blinds that I have. Um, just keep in mind, you don't need a gargantuan hole. Literally, if you think about from where your archery site and housing is in relation to where your arrow is at full draw, you're only talking about a couple inches. And so literally for my hunts, when I'm running my, I, I use those style blinds extensively. I say an opening no wider than nine inches. You don't have to have a big opening. Okay, so you don't have to let a lot of light in. So for that surround view, that's kind of what I would probably use. I would go ahead and slide that wind, that horizontal window open, maybe no more than nine inches. A lot of times for my personal hunts, I do six inches, but I'll have it nine inches, and I'll have it at least a cup, you know, left and right, maybe two to three feet or whatever the opening is in the blind, front of the blind. That way, if that bird, if the mature bird that you want to kill is a little timid, and he decides to go strut five yards to the left or five yards or 10 yards to the left or 10 yards to the right of your, your decoy, you, you can just swing over and smack him. Justin, one question I have is what broadheads are you using and what are you planning to head shoot, neck shoot, or are you planning to body shoot? You know, in the past I've always shot the, uh, gosh, forgive me if I'm wrong, is it the the game reapers, I'm not sure it's the silver one with the blunt tip. Um, it's a, uh, expandable. Uh, I did, I did just sight in, um, fortunate to have 40 yards in my backyard here. I did sight in the Magnus bullheads uh, this morning, actually. Good. So I highly recommend Chris and I just covered this, but highly recommend head and neck shots. Take your time. You know, it sounds like you've got a good little piece of property and you've got some time to hunt them. Go for that head and neck shot. It's either a clean miss or it's a dead kill. If you hit them anywhere in the neck or head, they're they're dead. Um, so I would encourage you, yes, do the Magnus bullheads and you know go for head and neck shot. And I think you're gonna I think you're gonna be sending us a picture of a big old tom turkey. Awesome, well, I appreciate it. Any yeah. other questions? No, that's about it. Uh, 
got a probably a long two weeks ahead of me itching <laughs> to get out there. Well, the good news is you've got a trail camera working for you, um, you know, establishing patterns. And then, you know, the only thing I would say is be aware that if the pattern changes, be able to adapt. But, you know, it sounds like the perfect, perfect plan. Give them a little space on the roost so your birds stay there. Even if you could almost hunt them, you know, day after day, as long as you let them roost there and you don't mess with them, uh, I think you'll be good. Actually, I just had a question pop in my head, if you don't mind yeah. me asking. Um, so the, the, where the setup is, um, is almost like a hill in front of me and where they roost is kind of, like I mentioned back 150 yards. Um, they are running that fence line. Um, if they get into a couple days or I'm not seeing them running, um, having those decoys behind that hill, if I'm calling say in the morning with just some white chirps or some hen calls, um, is there any concern with those decoys not being visible if they're going to pitch down or should the calls themselves be enough to entice them? So Chris actually just talked about this. He actually likes the decoys not being in visual of the gobblers on the roost or the turkeys on the roost. He likes them to almost want to seek out what's making that sound. Um, you know, one thing that's coming into my mind too is, Yes, I think that with this with this strategy, I think having them where they have to kind of seek out, you know, the hen call and then go, oh, there, and then have confirmation that, okay, what we're hearing and now what we're seeing is, is a double confirmation that those are turkeys. I would not set the decoys out until literally right before you're going to go, go, go time uh, opening morning. Um, but also keep in mind i don't think you want them to see the decoys from a long 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 ways away it's almost like you without seeing the terrain you almost want them to come down they're coming kind of that way because they normally always do and then oh there's some turkey decoys and boom they go to them if that makes sense chris what are your thoughts about them seeing them from too far away um i think sometimes can work against you if if you have the right flock that maybe isn't as social Exactly. You know, I, you're absolutely right. And this allows you to just kind of test that group out and see exactly what they want, how aggressive they are, or how timid they are. Um, because, yeah, you can, and you have it. Yeah, you, you hit a couple things, Jay. Number one, I didn't think about this, but it absolutely happens. And I, and I hear it all the time. And I'm glad you said it. Yeah, don't go set decoys prior to you actually physically hunting. Um, that will absolutely kill you. Um, because they'll get to, they'll get used to having the they'll they'll go and investigate them and then realize they're fake and then they're, you're done. So make sure you don't you just don't put decoys out there for you know to get pictures or whatever unless you're actually physically going to kill something. Um, and then the other thing is, I want them to be don't don't you've got private land you know these birds are there they have been consistent you shouldn't have any. Unless only trespass or predators come through or whatever, they should stay consistent. So, if the birds come in and they come over and they peek over the hill and they, and, you know, they come and investigate your calls, they see the decoys, but then they kind of sit there, they strut a little bit, strut a little bit, and then the hens just keep on going, and that bird just turns and follows and goes with the hens. Don't worry about it; just stay put because it's it, early season. That gobbler may be like, "Well, who the heck? There's a group of where these guys come from?" But man the ladies I'm with are over here and, and I know these ladies and well, they're going to go away. Uh, I'm just going to follow them. And they may just walk with those hens 
And then three hours later, like you just said, that a lot of the activity seems to be midday and scattered. You might have them go off with the hens in the morning and, quote, unquote, ignore you only for them to swing right back around at 10, 11 o'clock and walk squarely into your setup and just kick the piss out of your decoys. So don't feel rushed. Make sure, just, just, I would play it low key. I'm always more conservative than I am aggressive, especially in this situation. Because if you bump them and they move and they go off the property, well, you're out of luck. So just take your time, let the decoys work, let your calling work, and just evaluate. Don't pressure them too bad. And I like the idea that they they aren't going to see you come. Make sure you get in there early enough to where they cannot see you coming into your blind in the dark in the morning. And make sure when you set your decoys out, you're quiet. But I like the fact that they're going to start moving your way when they stumble upon your setup. It, oftentimes, that's a much, much higher percentage play than trying to force it down their throats, especially when we're dealing with these small pockets of birds. And on the full strut decoy, I would use real feathers if you can. Yes. Use a real tail Do fan. Do you have the ability to get a, a real tail fan? I have a fly shop. I might be able to dig some up. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I would try and yeah, find pretty- a full fan. You can actually order them online. I think it's feathers.com. Um, okay. Justin, you and I have fished together, so um, if you can't find them, I can, I can give you links to find a real tail fan. And having a real tail fan on a strutter decoy works way better than the one that's supplied. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, I think I'll do that. Okay. Awesome, man. Look forward to maybe fishing again this summer. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, and look forward to getting out there, and thank you for all the advice. Keep us posted on how it goes. All right. Thank you. All right. All right, Chris. All right. Yeah, you're all mine now, brother, because, yeah, I'm in the same boat. We we probably ought to wrap this one up before we lose every other, you know, the other two listeners that you have on your podcast, but – um, no, dude, I, I, I think it's interesting because I am, I am literally from a shotgun standpoint, I am on the other side of the spectrum. I, if I was going to recommend a shotgun for somebody, I would say get a pump shotgun because they're easy to load. You most of the time are not going to jam them. They're easy to clean. You can load. It's easy to clean. They are, they are quiet to operate and you know, we can have a discussion about a long barrel versus a short barrel. It, it all comes down to which one patterns the best for you. I I like the I, I like my short barrel shotgun for the very reason they started developing the short barrel shotgun was because if you need to if you're sitting in some sort of cover and you need to swing, well, a long barrel is going to catch vegetation and other trees and stuff long before a short barrel will. So a short barrel gives you a little bit more maneuverability, but I would not go a short barrel at the expense of a good pattern. So just, but, 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 but nowadays, most shotguns, if you're going to buy a shorter barrel with the chokes that you can get, and now we're talking about the ammunition that you can get, goodness gracious, I, I do, I, I think you can do really good with a shorter barrel. Uh, And, I am not a fan of the ability unless you unless you are a, a unless you are experienced with that shotgun. I have seen too many times in one it's situation with a with a young lady, a youth hunter, 
comes to mind. Semi-automatic shotgun. Bird comes in. We're coaching her through it. Everything's going good. She pulls the trigger. Now, again, the, it was a close-range shot, so she pulls the trigger, and she, it, the, either the bird moved or she got excited, and only one or two pellets hit that bird in the head, and it just stunned him. And it was standing there, and it starts working, you know, starts walking in circles, and it's kind of it's out of the loop. Well, she got excited, next, and we're getting ready to talk her through the next shot. Boom! The, the shotgun goes off, and before we can even talk her through, boom, there's the other shot. It's like, okay, hold on a minute. If you're dealing with new hunters, sometimes I've seen with a semi-automatic shotgun where the excitement starts to take control rather than cool, calm, calculated execution of your shot. That's where a pump, sometimes if you go bang and you miss and the bird walks out there a little bit, at least for me, if I'm in a ground blind, I can reach over, grab the shotgun. I can quietly re-pump. That, uh, I can put another round in the chamber. Meanwhile, the bird's like, what is going on? You know, if, if they're working the spread and settled already, sometimes that bird can linger a little bit. I can actually hand that over to them. Now they've had the chance to calm down a little bit, and they can follow up and make a, a good executed second shot. So, no, I that's I did not expect that. I, I thought we were going to be on the same page on that, but it's interesting that you brought it up because it's, it brings up a good compare and contrast because there are a lot of people that want a semi-automatic shotgun because of the quick follow-up ability. I used to that from the standpoint of, man, they jam. I, I've seen so many jam. You know, people that are not familiar with the gun, it ends up jamming. They, they, when we're trying to be quiet, they ride that slide down and it doesn't lock all the way in. So you get a, a misfire or you, the trigger's just not there. And uh, in those, in, you know, exciting moments, sometimes all three of those shots go off before you, <laughs> you can even do anything about it. Now you got to reload anyway. Yeah, I oh. hear you. It's definitely, definitely something to debate and to question. I think we could go either way. Um, Wow, we've covered a lot of ground. I think this has been very yeah, good. Man. I think people get really good value. Um, Chris, I want to give you a chance to let listeners know how to follow along, and obviously I'll link it up in the show notes, and we're actually going to do a joint. Uh, we're going to both use this content, so I think it's going to be bo- uh, great for both of us. It's always great having you on. It's always great talking turkeys, and I think this will be another extensive uh series uh that we've done on turkeys and and i encourage anyone else to listen to the other seven part series that we did on turkeys we've i've gotten tons and i know chris has tons and tons of feedback on that so i think we're going to get more great feedback on this so chris how can people follow along and any last uh, thoughts you have yeah no it's always for for anybody that does it's just always row hunting resources roe hunting resources no matter where you are it's our website and you can go we've got an educational module there that you can learn a bunch of this stuff and see video of it talking about it um and i did i I went ahead and i looked that video up and yeah it's under the the straight shot videos on my website as far as the turkey anatomy and the the shot placement um it's a good video to watch because it it really opens that it's very revealing on exactly where their heart and lungs are in relation to previously um, I previous, I guess I won't say dogma, but anyway, some of the old school thinking of 
where to aim on a turkey doesn't really match up to where their heart and lungs are. So that's in there. But if you go on social media, YouTube, it's always ROE, Row Hunting Resources, and you can find me there. But the other, like you said, I, I want to be able to share this with, with our folks too. And, and I really do encourage if you, especially now that we're sitting there, you know, supposed to be self-isolating and staying home and these movement orders and everything else, People are just consuming stuff online. If you are a passionate turkey hunter, I've got a bunch of stuff on my YouTube channel, but it does not even compare to the amount of video, turkey turkey video, that Jay has on his YouTube channel. So by all means, Jay, where tell people where to go to see some of that stuff because they definitely need to follow you on social media because you post a lot of stuff there as well by all means, give them your spiel because I think it's worth it. Yeah, I mean, the YouTube, they can just, uh, best way to find it is probably just J. Scott Gould's Turkey Hunting. And on my actual uh, YouTube channel, um, there's, I think, 175 Gould's Turkey videos. A lot of, you know, really good quality behavioral stuff, you know, just watching them in their, you know, doing their thing, beating up decoys and all of that. Uh, also J Scott on Instagram, J Scott Uh, and, uh, Chris, it's always great, uh, having you on row hunting resources, is a trusted, uh, valued source of, of most Western hunters that are serious. So I encourage my listeners go check out rowhuntingresources.com. Chris has the, the elk module and the turkey module and it, it's, uh, it's a subscription uh, video, but the amount of content uh, in the subscription module is absolutely amazing. And the instruction stuff that Chris does is second to none. So, Chris, I want to hats off to you for all of the great work that you've done on that. And it's always great kind of partnering and doing uh, things like this and trying to dive in the weeds and get real extensive. And uh, I think we're pushing on five hours here. Uh, and there's, there's not many people that you can just sit and talk. And I mean, we could probably go another five hours and still be going. Um, so it's awesome to to talk to someone that's passionate, but, uh, even more someone that's got as much knowledge and background that you do. So, um, great job, buddy. Well, I, I appreciate that's Very generous. I appreciate it. I love you. And, and I, I do enjoy our conversation. So as always, you're welcome to, if you, Anytime you want to chat, let's chat. But uh, I, I've got a couple ideas for you that I'm going to pitch your way, and we're going to have some more fun with this. So, no, thank you very much for that. And I do, um, I fingers crossed, brother. I, I really hope for all of us, uh, I hope that this COVID-19 thing just kind of, I, I put on my social media, I, I kind of hope it just kind of wafts away like a spark in a ground blind. Um, <laughs> it just kind of just, just disappears. But, you know, I really hope it doesn't interfere with the guys that want to come down and, and get their ghouls turkey with you. And um, I just hope it, I hope everybody stays safe, be smart, just stay healthy, but uh, don't let it get, don't, don't let it discourage you. Get out there and enjoy nature and, and good luck this spring. Right on buddy. God bless. Take care. All right, brother. Bye. Bye. Well, there you go, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that discussion. And um, if you are, whether you're a beginning turkey hunter or a passionate turkey hunter, I hope that gives you some good information to chew on. As always, if you need more information, you can go check out Jay's website and, and especially his YouTube channel. And I, as as always, we've got the turkey module in Row Hunting Resources. 
Um, it's cheap. It's 15. Uh, it, it's cheap. Seriously. It's worth, especially if you're just getting started out in turkey hunting and you want to learn. Um, it's a great resource. But anyway, by all means, check it out. But I appreciate you guys for listening in. And I'm going to try to crank out a bunch more of these over these next days and weeks while we're all kind of locked in with this COVID-19 garbage. Hopefully everybody is staying safe and healthy. And if you have questions, if you have topics you'd like me to cover, if you have ideas that you would like me to explore on a podcast setting, absolutely let me know. And also let me know if you are only interested in the audio or do you like having the option of a video with these discussions. I can record these on video and post them as well, but if no one's going to watch them, why do I go through all the trouble? So if there's a significant portion of you that would enjoy having a video, let me know and I'll, I'll just start recording the, the videos as well. Now, there are going to be some topics that I do discuss that absolutely lend themselves to video. Of course, those will be done as such, but there's a lot of other conversations we can have that it could just be a, an audio discussion. So I'll cover more about where we're heading in some of this in an upcoming episode. Thanks, everybody.